0: on the Google Play or App Store, or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. You never want to find yourself out on the water fishing without your essentials, so it's best to always pack a Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie to protect against the sun. Man, I was just in Hawaii, and I had my Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie with me how i load organize my truck all my stuff that i want is always in there out of my way and secure it's perfect if you own a pickup truck that you use you know like a truck the Decked drawer system gives you weatherproof storage for all your gear you can lock it up too you keep your tools and gear organized job site or out in the field go to deck.com slash meat eater to receive free shipping go to decked Dot com slash meat eater. Get yourself some free shipping. This is the meat eater podcast coming at you shirtless, severely bug bitten, and in my case, underwear The meat eater podcast. You can't predict anything. Presented by first light creating proven, versatile hunting apparel from Merino base layers to technical outerwear for every hunt. First Light, go farther, stay longer. Uh, Yanni's having some trouble with the zipper on his shorts.
1: I was wondering if you'd like to talk (laughs) about this on the air.
0: The zipper on his shorts does not provide enough opening. Yes. Now, someone might see where I might be going with this, and I'm not. It's that you know. he, it's not what can't come out. It's that he can't get his hand in there. Yeah. Chafes his hand, and he tries to get his hand in there, and it pops
1: the button. Very disappointed. He's returning these shorts. Mm-hmm. I've had a, I had a pair of jeans that were like a low-rise, I think. I didn't notice when I bought them. They were like a low-rise cut, which means that... They still got to have the crotch in the same place, but because the waistline is lower, you you end up off less
0: upper, Like a lower ass neck tattoo? No?
1: No. No,
2: you don't have a a butterfly (laughs) tattooed back
3: there. (laughs) But buyer beware of short zippers. I might be revealing too much here. Am I the only person that when they need to unzip, they also unbutton? No, my six-year-old does that. Not
0: only does he do that, <laughs> Some he, dro- he drops them down to the, to the back of his
3: knees. Okay, I don't do that,
1: Steve. Thank you. But yet, I don't know. You might be younger. You are younger, but you might be used to a uh, different style of pants than I am that just always have short zippers and thus you're used to just always unbuttoning.
0: Yanni was raised during an era of generous zippers. <laughs> Big, long zippers. What, what, what's happening in this country? And then people got tight. People got tight. Well, I'll tell you what's happening in this country. People got tight with zipper material, Phil. Hmm. Joined today by uh, historian Ted Blue, Daniel Boone historian, like uh, the, the first frontier historian, former professor in the history department of Franklin University.
4: That's because you retired, not because you got fired or anything, right? No, it's, it's a Murray State University. Why does it say Franklin, Why did I put U- Franklin um, University? I, Franklin is my middle name. Ted oh, your middle name got—I knew yeah. that—but your middle uh, name <laughs> got bumped down. Sorry, have, that was my fault. Yeah, I don't have my own university. Uh, I, I'm working on that. You know, the, I'm still thinking about the zipper issue. I'm thinking, you know, Daniel Boone had a loincloth and a sash. You don't have—you just go from the side. You don't. Yeah. it works better. Oh, I would have—I would have probably. Dribbled on it.
0: Then.
2: Pardon me. I was probably sleep <laughs> yeah, well, typing when I when I wrote not Franklin His, name, <laughs> That's so his
0: middle name,
4: Ted Franklin, blue. <laughs> thank you. Murray State University.
2: <laughs> Sorry.
4: <laughs> yeah, they'll appreciate that better back home.
0: <clears throat> That'd be sweet if you started your own school, though. I'd, I'd enroll, man. <laughs> I'd do a double major. Oh, well, thank you. You would major in. <laughs> I'd major in Boone and Kenton. Daniel Boone with a minor in
4: Simon Kenton. And a banjo player. Did I mention that already?
0: Nope. No, I'm discombobulated.
4: Yeah, I I did that for several years. I mean, I still pick, but uh, yeah, I dropped out of college actually to uh, to play banjo. It was all I had a free free ride. It was all paid for, but I said, no, I want to play, and so that's what I did for two or three years. Yeah, and uh, down in Florida, you know, <laughs> kind of a no name, but we played the same uh, southeastern circuit as um, Bill Monroe and Lester Flat and uh, Ralph Stanley. Ralph. if People saw the movie Oh Brother Where Art Thou. He's sang, Oh, death. He sang that. Yeah. And, uh, and Ricky Skaggs and um, Keith Whitley were playing with Ralph then. And uh, Marty Stewart, who was about 13 or 14, was playing with um, Lester Flat And Vince Gill was in high school. He was playing with uh, the Bluegrass Alliance. And um, then there was me, who nobody knew. And <laughs> still can't get my name right seven years later. <laughs> so...
1: Uh, I want to know uh, if the... Uh, but you went back uh, to college. Yeah, it's my wife's idea. Was it, yeah, you, it, was my was it still idea. free? Was it still paid for when you went back three years later? It
4: was not. I oh. moved to Kentucky to play in a band, and, um, and that didn't work out so well. Then I was kind of reduced to uh, Wendy's and painting gutters, and then I ran trap lines for four years. And I was thinking about going down to the Gulf and maybe work on some um, oil rig down there, like commercial diving type stuff. And my wife said, why don't you go back to school and... She's always been kind of the brain to the blue outfit, and I go, That's a lot safer. Plus, I can be on land, and um, that's what I did. Yes, yeah, so were, were you on a full ride banjo scholarship? And, <laughs> 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 no, my my father was a veteran of World War II, and uh, he had the GI Bill, he passed on when I was a boy, and, and uh, oh, it transferred, yeah, right, yeah, it's a, it a good gig, and then he was a um a mailman. And so you also had civil service benefits. And so as long as I stayed in and didn't drop out for more than one year, I I was, it was paid for, but uh, I dropped out and said, I want to play banjo. That's where the, that's where the money is. Did you go on to, so (laughs) did you, you go on, you went on to get like a doctorate? No, I never did. I uh, I went back. I, I actually majored in wildlife biology, but I couldn't pass chemistry. My actual interests then, in, and largely still are, were uh, uh, ichthyology. Uh, I wanted to study, particularly bull shark behavior, and uh-huh. and uh, either that or herpetology and study, uh, particularly eastern diamondbacks and uh, deal with habitat issues with the uh, Crotalus adamanteus, the eastern diamondback. And but I but I I loved history, and so when I realized that that was not going to happen because I couldn't pass chemistry. I s- just sat down one day with the the curriculum guy and I go, what do I like? And I, you know, pass, I mean, what can I do? And so I went to history and they were having, you know, I had American Indian studies. They had, you know, the American West. And I said, I love this stuff. And, and I was in Kentucky. And um, when I was a boy, I was really hung up on Daniel Boone. I mean, mania and third, fourth, fifth grade. I mean, I, I literally told my parents in fourth grade, and my sister will be hearing this. She can probably confirm it. I said, I'm, I'm not going to study any more um, math and sentence diagramming. I just want to study Earl Scruggs on the banjo and uh, Daniel Boone. And that didn't go over well. But that's what you did. Uh, yeah, pretty much. I kind of <laughs> went through a mountain man period and uh I like John Wayne and the Alamo, uh, but but yeah, it's pretty much Boone and then uh in, by junior high, you know, I start seeing uh, cheerleaders and stuff and I said, that's oh, this to life than Daniel Boone and uh <laughs> like cheerleading." Yeah, not me personally. It's, yeah, it wasn't yeah, it wasn't was me sure. personally, but uh but yeah, the kind kind of and and then we moved to Kentucky, like I said, my wife and I, uh, her name is Lavina, which, by the way, was also the name of one of Boone's daughters. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, it is. It's really kind of unusual. And uh, when I got back, to Kentucky. Um, I happened to go by one time, there was a Flintlock shooting exhibition and, uh, I said, wow. And it, it really struck a nerve. And then I read Alan Eckert's book, uh, the frontiersman about that's a good ass book. That's it, a tremendous yeah. book. I mean, uh, uh, Simon Kenton and Tecumseh. And it, it just all of a sudden I was dreaming as a kid again about, uh, you know, torch cabins and, um, uh upraised ball head war clubs and flintlocks and powder horns you take and... note of that war club hanging over your head yeah it was <laughs> yeah that was... one wow yeah was that was that specifically for me or did you steal that from magua <laughs> no we were gifted <laughs> that. that was uh from, we were Magwa, that by a from guest. Uh, west studie here's steve use this instead of a bow
0: Hey, uh, but you were an extra, I want to, we got to hit a couple of things, but I want to sure. talk about one other thing. You were an extra
4: in last of the Mohicans. How
0: I, long I, did you hang
4: around there? I, I did that. It was almost eight weeks. It was just under eight weeks. I kept waiting to get killed in the massacre scene because I had it all, <laughs> all ready to go with this buddy of mine from Skytook, Oklahoma. He's a Shawnee. And I go like, wow, I'm going to get killed by a real Shawnee. And uh, that it didn't happen because you remember the last scene with the big massacre? It, it kept raining and that valley was inundated. So I had to come back and to Murray State and teach World Civ. And no one ever killed you? <laughs> no, no. I got killed a bunch. I made 300 bucks <laughs> one time getting... One night I made 300 bucks in six hours getting killed. But How'd you get I killed lived, that time? Uh, you know there was cannon shredding, and you you had these kind of like minor uh, bumps that for guys you know, had this the real stunt men, and then they had the people that weren't that bright that would be willing to do stuff for more money. That's kind of the category I was in, and so I. Was, but you had
0: your you had your own personal getup on.
4: <laughs> no, no, well, no, I had whatever they had. Yeah, you know, I would typically. Oh, so you didn't bring your own period dress; they gave you the dress. I wanted to, but no, I I would be a. a a British red coat for a while with, oh, a, with really? a brown best musket then they'd Jeez, you couldn't have paid me enough to do that <laughs> then they switch off and they said okay be a French guy for a while and so you'd you'd put on the French marine outfit and uh, you get the Charlottesville musket then they switch it back and a lot of it was hurry up and away but yeah it was a fascinating thing I mean I knew that I would never have an experience like that again and um, I mean you can't just go anywhere and see a, a near full Scale reproduction of Fort William Henry, uh, seventeen fifty-seven, and the first night on the set where we really got past the exercises because we the first week was calisthenics. Captain Dale Die he wrote he co-wrote um, Top Gun and Platoon. He trained all those guys. He was twenty-one year Marine vet. He's like, all right, you yeah, you know, he just worst profanity in the world, quite colorful. But you know, once we got past the week of training with him, um, got out there and the first night you know, take one and you would have the pyrotechnics going off. I fire a cannon. I'm a French Marine. I took my coat off so my mom could maybe see me. And, uh, (laughs) hey mom. And so, um, you know, they had 1800 Indians just come up out of the shadows and you just get chill bumps and the pyrotechnics are going, you go like, you'll never see anything like that. So, Did you die with dignity or were you like, uh. Most of the time, there's sometimes I was sometimes I was indignant because I realized how little I was getting paid for this, and so you know I'd, I'd crawl back and try to live again. <laughs> Down, you know. Plus, I had a French name, Baloo, Baloo. And um, so you got killed by shrapnel. <laughs> did, did you get knifed or anything like that? Ever? No, nothing cool like that. But no, no. mainly it, it left me with really bad tinnitus. I mean, I my ears are still popping. Because um, the pyrotechnics. Yeah, but they gave us little earplugs and so that were like that was close enough. Were they period period earplugs? <laughs> Boom. Oh, really? Yeah, I don't think that they the Greeks, I think the Greeks had it then, you know, cuz of the sponges.
0: Uh, okay, we'll get back to Daniel Boone. We're going to get into Daniel Boone hardcore
4: big time. I hope we do. Yeah, you time. know what's, what's interesting to me and this is why I'm I'm fascinated. Boone has been dead 200 and one years this year. No. Yeah. And so why are we talking about it? We should Daniel have done it Boone. last year when it was two hundred anniversary of his death. Well, I had a book come out then, and it came out the same day that he died, September 26, 1820. And I was like, Oh and but what was going on then? COVID. So what uh, and it was about well the title of it, you know, his Where's Daniel Boone buried? I mean, that's not actually the title. I can't remember. His last day Daniel Boone, his last days in Missouri and the strange fate. Of his remains, because there's a lot of controversy about where was he buried. So I said, "Well, this is great. It'll be the 200th anniversary, and it'll come out." And, and uh, COVID, did it come out? Yeah, September 26th didn't sell like hotcakes. Uh, Thirty-five cents a stack. What do you mean? That's how hotcakes sell. 30. Oh, it's, oh. <laughs> a, it's, a, it's a Southern joke. Uh, they don't say that in Michigan, I guess. Thirty-five. It <laughs> sells so like hotcake. Thirty-five cents a stack. I got you. That's a bluegrass you. joke. Uh, okay. But <laughs> <laughs> That's, uh, Yeah,
1: we're north of that. Can uh, I get a southerner? We, don't, we, don't, get we, blue, any southerners we don't
0: get bluegrass humor. Clay might get <laughs> a joke. He, Clay'd probably get a joke uh, like that. He's okay. not here. Oh, after Yanni presented to us, so if you go back in a couple episodes, Yanni presented to us about um, him being out with, his, with Bart George doing mountain lion research. And... They're practicing. I act like I am telling you this because you don't know this. They're they're testing. I am interested though. Well, let's, see you, get a, let's see you get a
4: mountain lion hanging around. Yeah, Boo's son Daniel Morgan had a real bad experience with a mountain lion, so yeah, I'm, I love mountain lions.
0: So you are tuned in. Yeah, let's say you get a mountain lion hanging around, and they want to find a way to haze it. They want to like get it so it's not habituated to humans, spook it off. What they're what they're working on is they go and uh, put a collar on the lion. And they approach it with sounds. They actually play this podcast to the mountain line to see at what point, like the zipper part. (laughs) We should switch. We should switch so it's a zipper, a little, but a real short zipper sound. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, check this out. You got to follow what I'm saying because I'm going to tell you something complicated. (laughs) They play this podcast to a mountain line. Just blasting it. This is real. I'm not I'm yeah. not joking, man. 80 decibels. 80 decibels. And they and they got a radio. They already got it collared. They got a radio collar on it. So they can tell at what point it spooks from human voices. At what point it runs off. Then they go in right away and re-catch it with dogs and harass it a little bit. Then you're going in the future and see, like, did that experience of human voices cause it to want to keep its distance. The fact that you're playing human voices and then harassing it with dogs. Can you can you sort of like train the cat to move away and not want to be around human voices? Jim Hefflinga wrote in about how if you played the show open where you can hear a tree falling, mm-hmm. that he feels that that would speak particularly well to the mountain lion.
1: Yes, who's not gonna like that sound up mm-hmm. in a tree. Well, the thing is, is that when they hear our podcast, it is, uh, the mountain lion is still on the ground. It's not when it's up on a limb, yeah, right? But even then, you know, mountain lions spend a lot of time in the woods, almost all the time. And so I guess it depends on what habitat they live in, but even then the sound of a falling tree might be alarming to a mountain lion. But you say they calculated that then and they only play, they skip ahead. Yeah, I think, uh, yeah, Bart mentioned something about that. Yanni
0: suggested they don't even play the ads to them because mm-hmm. they don't want to, like, encourage consumerism.
1: Yeah, and mountain lions. <laughs> Cougars. Yeah, they're probably. All right. Well, probably, but he also sent in a sign that he took a picture of. Do you want to read the sign? Yeah, but I don't really understand the sign. It's a real sign.
0: British it, Columbia.
1: British Columbia Parks. Looks like they put it up. It's a it's a warning sign. And it says, very large letters, cougar in area, then a little bit smaller letters. Please stay on trails, travel in small groups, and do not, capitalize, do not allow men under 30 to travel alone.
2: That's a statement on men But under gales 30. can go right ahead. <laughs> yeah. yeah.
1: If you're a young female,
0: <laughs> have at it. And I guess he even said like under 14, but like, what...
2: Maybe there's a particular disposition, generally, flighty? about a or, or irresponsible. Maybe I think that's that's trying to protect uh, men under thirty from themselves.
1: Yeah,
3: from poor decision making. I <laughs> think. That is a weird. I, are you, I, like, are are you, are you know, guys missing the joke here? Cougar is another name for like an older woman. Oh. who's Oh, still...
2: <laughs> we're totally Jeez. missing the joke. Really? <laughs> <Phil. Yeah. laughs>
3: Holy cow, Phil! Oh my
1: God. God, so Phil is dense. smart. Pebblefinger uh, <laughs> really? now is probably upside down in his you know, chair. I'm sending a stupid ass jokes that I don't realize
0: are jokes. It's yeah, like God, Jim.
1: Off, you really screwed this up. Oh, God. We don't.
0: Don't
3: send subtle jokes, man. Yeah. I like, like, a... we're
2: so dense. <laughs> Thanks, That's terrible. good,
3: Phil. Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's that good. I think it's just this is mostly embarrassing for you guys. Very embarrassing. Holy cow, man. Well, yeah. Jude, I need to you know get what? A, I need to I go think, into a new line I of work. I think
1: again, this comes back to the different in age, a, difference <laughs> in ages here because I used to partake in cougar jokes, but it's been 20 years.
3: Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's it's outdated for sure.
1: Oh yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm too uh I'm so I'm that just shows how woke I
3: am. There you go. Yeah. So I didn't get the joke. You've moved past it. So you're saying cougars don't even exist anymore? I mean, people probably still use the term, but I mean, it's not in the main. I mean, there's a whole show called Cougar Town. That was like the peak of it. It's about older lions. women. Yeah, exactly. No, it's about Courtney Cox looking for uh, men under 30. Um, but now.
0: <laughs> Ow, man. Dude, that is probably the most embarrassing thing. Uh, yeah, I got half mind to edit that whole thing out and make it that I got the joke. Okay. Hey, you know what? Let me let me do. Uh, yeah, let's here. let's patch What'd it in you right say? now. Oh, let me say this. Okay. Then you patch us in and sure, be sentence. Like, yeah. I'm gonna say, uh, "Oh, Yanni, you obviously don't get the joke. It's no older women. Okay, put that prowling prowling for younger prowling yeah. for young. There you go. Put, put that all in. Got there. You'll patch that together. <laughs> of right, Of course. Joel? Yeah. Uh-huh. Thank you.
1: We're losing Ted. Ted's Ted's, <laughs> Ted's losses. Well, we'll it, but we're going fi- to come bring
0: find him. No, I'm good. We're going to come find him in a minute. <laughs> we had a correction to do. We were talking about sexing chicks. Yeah. Chickens. <laughs> sexing baby... <laughs> sexing baby chickens. And I was saying that with the increased popularity of backyard poultry raisin, of which Yanni's a participant... Um people go out and they buy birds and then, then they are often surprised they buy chickens to lay eggs. And they're often surprised to find that, that one day it wakes up in the morning and goes, mm-hmm. right. And I was talking about how, um, I felt that there was some issue where it was extremely difficult to sex chicks ins, young chicks, young chickens, Right. And a, guy, a poultry guy from a poultry grower in Delaware says it's really not that. Commercial poultry grower. Check this out. He says, male chicks have even feather follicles at the edges of their wings, whereas females will have notably long and short feather follicles. He says this strategy is pretty spot on. There's also vent sexing which Brant showed us with ducks, where you squeeze the feces out of the chick, which opens up the chick's anal vent called a cloaca slightly, allowing the chicken sexer to see if the chick has a small bump, which would indicate that the chick is a male. Now you can if you want to sex a duck, you can open that cloaca up and it looks like a little, Worm in there,
2: like an inside out worm or, an, or a worm,
0: like a little wormy structure in there. Okay, and that when engorged with blood, that's the second time engorged has been used in reference to on this show, yeah. And this year,
2: yeah,
1: engorged with blood, you can tell that it's a male or female. Do you know that, Yanni? I did not. Why would you, um, are there certain duck species that the males and females look the same from the outside, or if young. you kill an immature, oh, that's yeah, what it is. Young. You kill an
4: immature yeah. one.
2: Ted, do you know about this?
4: You know, I don't, but oh, I, okay. I was just thinking that it, it's hard to sex beaver too. You know, the, I think the yeah, the, the organs are internal. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. We, we actually uh, rehab one. Can for, be done. When when you skin them, you know right off. Yeah, yeah. I mean, but uh, yeah, but that's kind of intrusive. <laughs> you know, put them up on the old. It gamut. often leads to. <laughs> it often leads to. Yeah, we mortality we, events. We rehabbed one uh, for six or seven months, and it got to be kind of onerous. And we didn't know if it was a boy or a girl. You took care of a baby beaver. We did. I, I you know, I, I at that time I was teaching at Murray State, and um, some um, I, I went into class one day, and there was a big box in there, a cardboard box, and I, I go, what's this? And they said uh, it's a beaver. I thought it was a joke, like, oh, okay, sure, I'm game. I opened it up, and it really was. It was a, a, a kit beaver. And, um, there had been some frat guys out there, uh, I think blowing up dens or something. I'm not sure. I don't, you know. And, and um, uh, so there was this one kit that had survived all of that. And these, uh, sorority girls, I don't know if they were AOPI, maybe alpha gams, tri-sig, I'm not sure. But anyway, the sorority girls, not important. Is that relevant? No. <laughs> Give them a shout out. <laughs> anyway, they brought the baby beaver in. I went, what am I gonna do? And so I write it. I would think I was lecturing that day on uh, Mesopotamia. And every time I'd pause talking about irrigation would go, eh and I'd go, and they go, oh, and so I said, okay, we're gonna take it home. So we took it home and we bottle raised it. It's kinda of like um remember the the guy Archibald, uh, what was his name? He thought he was in, he passed himself off as an Indian. He called himself Grey Owl. The only Archibald I know is Rutledge. And so yeah, we rehabbed this beaver for a while, but you know, he had an understanding landlord but it you know, after a while you gotta start replacing doors and restart, you know, replacing uh table legs and um So the beaver would chew that stuff up. Yeah, yeah. I mean the teeth they grow all the time. So they gotta but but we never knew if it was a boy or girl, that's the point. Yeah. You know, back to the well but we didn't know if it was a boy or girl. So we just called it baby baby beaver. Then it got to be less a baby and um so it was pretty good in speckleware with bacon over the top with No, I'm just kidding. You turned it loose. We found a, a beaver rehabber up in northern part of Kentucky and, and took it up there and um, hopefully it stayed out at, you know, 330 con of bears. Hmm. Beaver always shine.
0: Speaking of beavers, we had another correction. Some people like real riled up that I screwed this up. So I was saying how snares used to be snares and they got rebranded as cable restraints. I was wrong. Uh... A cable restraint has a relaxing lock on it. I thought like a relaxing lock was a snare with a, re- like, what kind of lock? It's a relaxing lock on a snare. But like, no, very big difference. Very big difference for you people out there who care tons about snares. A snare is a, when, when they're using the term snare, they're using, talking about a dispatch, a kill type trap. A cable restraint.
1: Because because the mechanism never relaxes. Never relaxes. And every time it moves, it just cinches. And, and you'd tighter. rig
0: it up so that you'd rig it up you know so that there's like entanglements you know you might like rig it to a tree mm-hmm. and wrap around the tree and tighten up and kill it but they're saying a restraint is rigged different different lock you don't have you, you don't have any kind of impediments around it that might cause it to get tangled up and it's rigged very much to keep the thing alive cable restraints folks
1: I thought it was interesting that the one guy wrote in from somewhere in the desert southwest as a trapper, and he said that it's very important for them to use them, not because they like, you know, for some sort of animal welfare, but because in their conditions, if they use a kill snare, they can lose that animal in the matter of hours. But if it's kept alive, then they can dispatch it. And it when, when I say when I say lose the animal, like they would lose the hide. Because of the hot conditions, and so, the heat. They, so they use that type of snare so that it pre, um, preserves the hide. You want to know
0: something else that guy said? He said, I would be lying if I said I wasn't a little disappointed that a fellow trapper wouldn't know the difference. But we will forgive you on this one. Kent. Uh, here, here's a good story Krim was telling me about. Someone sent this to us. Yep. There's a guy in Maine. This is this is this is a real conundrum. I don't have a, I don't have a opinion.
2: Yeah, I don't know either. Real
0: conundrum. A guy in Maine builds a house float. Basically, it's like a shed on a raft.
2: I mean, it's pretty sweet looking. Like you could sleep in it. You can with a rooftop. Looks all, yeah.
0: He builds like a raft. Puts a shed on it. Has in a in
1: Southeast roo- Alaska. They're everywhere.
2: Yeah.
0: Well, this is not there though. But this is where it gets rich. Mm-hmm. Builds a raft. Builds a shed on it so you can hang out and sleep in there. Puts a little upper deck on there with a cable, like, railing yeah. for, like, a deck. Brings it out to the local lake and says, hey, you're allowed to take a boat wherever you want and anchor it. And just moves into it. Much to the consternation of people that live around the lake. Other houses on the lake don't seem to bother them, but they are very perturbed. That this guy is living on their lake in in his (laughs) raft shed. His argument is that, show me where I'm not allowed to anchor a boat anywhere I want. It's public water. I don't have an opinion about it. Yeah. Kind of rooting for the guy.
2: Me too. I mean, <laughs> but then he says,
0: one person says how he docked up a few hundred feet for their house and spent the whole summer out there <laughs> partying. All
2: right. And he has a this lot guy, of people. He's a
1: partier?
0: Oh, yeah, he, well, he, he parties.
2: No, but pe- someone, someone claimed he had like 31 people in and out that day. And he, he, he said he had never had more than, I think, a couple. And,
0: and he yeah. said anyone on the lake is welcome to come out bring their kids, and jump off the roof. It's open to anyone to party. They say he can have as many as 16 boats tied up to it at once, (laughs) but I don't know what the hell kind of boats they're talking about. He says that's not true. Anyways, they're going after him. They're trying to pass an ordinance now about mooring. I don't have an opinion about it. Now, I grew up on a little lake. If some, yeah. If That's someone anchored if up some, off by my,
1: <laughs> if someone, it's okay. But if uh, all of a sudden there was a hundred,
3: I'd say as long as the guy doesn't have a stereo going like twelve hours a day. Yeah, but what like, if there's a yeah.
1: hundred? All of a sudden you can't go. You can't go waterski because there's too many
3: uh, float houses. Oh, sure you you think this guy will attract like a bunch more people. Mm. Like it'll catch on well, with I their mean, floating shit.
1: Think about it. You can't afford the 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 house that's on the shore cuz it's a million bucks, but you can build yourself a little house float for I don't know, 50k. I'm guessing you could do pretty good.
0: Crin likes the Oh, he's got it on pontoon floats. Corinne likes his little shit. Show shed.
4: Ted.
2: I think it's I think it's pretty cool.
4: <laughs> All right. It's like Ted Kaczynski. It's like Ted
0: Kaczynski's place on
4: floats. That's a, it's a real conundrum, man. Do they, do they mask? Are they
0: socially distant? I do not know. They don't get into that level of detail and they don't get into waste disposal. Mm. Mm. Hmm. Ellsworth, Maine.
1: I'm sure he's got a composting toilet.
0: If you live near Ellsworth, Maine, (laughs) I would, (laughs) I would go out and party with this gentleman, quietly party with this gentleman so he doesn't get in more trouble he's got kids out there with him.
1: if I was living out there I might think about quickly building one myself getting it out there because mm. then you'd be grandfathered in mm-hmm. <laughs> get out not, there now yeah once they make those <laughs> those rules you know nobody else so you you'll have, have a, one of the
4: two because you have a wood stove and Ooh, oh
1: yeah it would be a great idea yeah, huh. I mean,
4: you're there
0: another correction but I don't feel like getting into but I want to talk about the nature of the correction
4: yeah, that's
2: yeah
0: So this whole dog, like this whole German, if you've been listening to the show, this whole like people just a bickering about (sighs) attributes of obscure German hunting dog breeds. Oh my God. They wear me out, man.
1: Yeah. It's basically between uh, (laughs) German wire hair pointers. And a dog, that's called a drawthour, I believe is how you pronounce it.
0: Yeah, it's like, well, actually, the drawthour has 13 beard hairs upon birth, and <laughs> the German wire hair ranges from 9 to 11 beard hairs.
2: Ron, are you hearing this? <laughs> it's like, oh
0: my
4: God, it never ends, man. Uh,
2: Dad, you d- ever had d- a bird dog?
4: <laughs> I have not. I, our, our next door neighbors um, had a... Uh, Viperemmer, and it, it howled all the time. Whenever there'd be a siren in Orlando, there would be a lot of sirens, and my dog would go. My father would go out in his underwear and, and spray the hose across the Augusta uh, hedge and try to quiet the dog down. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, my the, the lady, uh, her name was Irene. We'll leave the last name anonymous, but but uh, but she saw my dad out there uh, in his undershort uh, spraying the hose and didn't realize that that was my dad. And so she called my mom and said, Myra, I don't want to scare you, but there's a man outside in his underpants. <laughs> and she goes, thank you, Irene. Frank, get in here. <laughs> so no, But it was a Weimerammer. Are they bird dogs? Uh, I believe um, so. Yeah. I'm not sure. I'm a, well, I mean,
0: I just like, oh, Weimar I'll get a little. But it, Ronnie does have, Ronnie But does have one. In his in his correction, which, which you'll just have to explain it next time you're on, Ronnie. But he does have one thing. They never do, back to this sharpness and hardness test, there's some debate amongst the German hunting dog community about whether this is fact or fiction, about making your dog duke it out with various small mammals, various mid-sized mammals. Ronnie points out that the sharpness, these are sharpness tests or hardness tests. You never do it on a test day. It's separate from a test day, but he goes on to say this. The fox part is in the test. So Dan- did Danielle, oh, <sighs> here's the other update. This the, the the dog, you know how Danielle's donating the dog to our auction house oddities, which yeah. started this whole? Yep. That dog's now pregnant. What do you call it when you're pregnant and they put that little wand over your belly? Uh,
2: Sonogram? Ul- ultrasound? Ultrasound. ultrasound. They- Hold on. The,
1: the, the mother of the puppy that was going to be auctioned off or the puppy that was going to be auctioned off is already pregnant? No, 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 no.
0: The dog that will birth the okay, puppy that we it. will auction off in the auction house of oddities. The way you just said it, well, you're I making
1: don't. it sound like a puppy was, was no. pregnant. No. It's Irish right.
0: Irish puppy. What was that old joke? Irish twins? Anyhow. Uh, what was I getting at? Oh. The dog's pregnant. The puppy's mm-hmm. down its way. There's at least five of them in there. They did a ultrasound on the dog. And that guy was talking about all this German dog stuff. Which I like. But Ronnie goes on to say this. Here's the test that they do that involves a dead fox. Okay? You get yourself a dead fox. Tie it to a cord. Give that cord to a judge. The judge then drags the fox 200 meters. You can tell we're talking about European stuff because it's in meters, not yards. Drags the fox 200 meters and leaves it behind a rail or a corral of sorts. Okay, drag the dead fox all around, put it in a corral. The dog gets there by nose, which Ronnie says is not a big deal. But what is a big deal is the dog has to jump into the corral, grab the dead fox out of there, jump out, and return it to their owner handler. That test is referred to as the fox in a box. And he goes on to say, true shit there. So no doubt someone will write in to tell us how
1: that's not actually true.
2: Right. And I think maybe we need to <laughs> that say, sounds like
3: some <laughs> Dr. Seuss shit.
2: Actually, that should be another shirt. We should make yet a, a new shirt. Yeah. Fox and
3: socks in a box. Dude, the
0: uh the um macro fructification t-shirts coming along nicely. There's gonna be like a hundred. What are you waving off?
1: Oh, T- Ted, uh, again, is wondering what we're talking about. And it doesn't I said, matter hey, because that important. that's the I'm last good. thing, and now we're getting back into no, I what know, we're talking about. But I'm saying, I was just like waving him off as in like the... Macdo, I can't pronounce it.
3: Well, I, I've got Let a question, you. Steve, because you're, you've been saying it more correctly. Are, are we getting, the are, do the t-shirts have the incorrect word on it, macro fructation, or do they have the real They're one, better. which was macro fructification? What would be a better, what would be a better, a better
0: t-shirt would be the email chain of people arguing about this. Okay. I eventually. What was the consensus? My role here, my role here at the company allows me to have final say on, on certain things. And I, and, and, uh, And one of those things was what this T-shirt would say on it. I felt that I was so close to right that I wanted to have the right word. Mm. So the shirt is a collection of beautiful mushrooms, a a sketch of a collection of beautiful mushrooms. And it says simply macro fructification, Uh. not macro fructation. Uh. Because the problem is it's so... My bad word, my wrong word, was so close to the right word that it's not really like it's not that funny anymore. And Brody yeah. even agreed. He's like, mm-hmm. then it just is confusing. Yeah, but there's only like a hundred of these shirts. We're gonna sell them. They'll be gone in an instant.
2: Oh, they will be. We'll need to do and like then we'll do fox wrong. in the box. Has it been de- has it been designed yet? Has <laughs> oh the yeah, shirt dude, been
3: designed? sharp looking shirt. Okay, exactly. only 99. I was gonna make a suggestion. There's only nine available because I want one.
2: <laughs> oh, that's too bad. We need. We'll need to make more. I think the demand oh, no, is be high
0: it's 144. Hmm. Cuz they sell them by the dozens apparently. Oh, okay. Eggs, traps, and, and t-shirts. apparently t-shirts <laughs> are sold by the dozen.
2: Okay. Will we get more in if it get true. sold out quickly? No, it's a one-off.
4: Oh. It's a huh. one-off. What's what's the price on these? By a few hundred bucks. A <laughs> 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 okay, stack well, of hotcakes. I, I guess I'll uh, hold off
1: you know what I feel like there's a lot of demand for and uh, we should do again since we're on the no, tell me. t-shirts is uh, a Bloch t-shirt yeah Let's rip off 144 of those buggers yeah. Fox in a Box is gonna be
2: I a sweet shirt I think we need to man. do that
0: it'll be Ronnie <laughs> <laughs> and Flip Flops <laughs> Spring is a great time to do something with your family. Do some spring cleaning, which I kind of started today outside, planning outdoor activities, which I'm always doing, taking a little trip to Hawaii with your kids for spring break, which I just did, which was great. You know what else you can do for your family this spring? You can shop for life insurance with Policy Genius. Make that part of your financial planning for the year. I've said it before I, a thousand times. I'll say it again. When my wife and I, when we started having kids, We got serious about life insurance, and, man, I felt so much better after we did. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just $292 per year for a million dollars of coverage. Some options offer same-day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. Even if you already have a life insurance policy through work, it may not offer enough protection for your family's needs, and it may not follow you if you leave your job. So, save time and money and provide your family with a financial safety net using Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com. Hey man, after years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if you've learned anything, it's that there is always a catch.
2: $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 per month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details.
0: Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura Frames are beautiful, Wi-Fi-connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited Photos. These things are super cool as a gift, especially if you got mom, aunt, grandma, whoever, and you want to like keep them up to speed on what the family's up to. Okay, It's easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. Named the best digital picture frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things, Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. You can share photos to the frame instantly from anywhere, meaning you share videos, photos from any device, and they will instantly appear on the frame, wherever it is in the world. There's no memory card required. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code MEATEATER at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. See now just to clear up now now we're back to talking to you. Yeah,
4: great. It's uh, <laughs> I'm glad I came up from Kentucky to hear about all this. It's uh yeah, but, that, that, but that's good because I've never been to Montana. I've never been this close to Canada. You know, i like I wanted to sing, maybe have some Neil Young angst or something. And yeah, uh, no, you're essentially, essentially in Canada Lightfoot, right now, man. Daryl Hannah, maybe you know, she has been to Canada, I bet with I've the, seen Gordon Lightfoot twice. Live. Really? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, he had a great guitarist back in the 60s, Red Shea, great acoustic guitarist. He did, like, the if you could read my mind, the you know, the guitar parts if here. If he you was, could read my mind. Uh, Steve, I'm reading your mind, what man. It's I'm reading it. It's, hey, tell it, us what a long know. hunter was. Yeah, a long hunter was a professional uh, hunter uh, that uh, crossed the Alleghenies. They crossed the Blue Ridge. They came from Western Virginia, Western North Carolina, Eastern Tennessee—they supplanted the Indian in the deer skin trade, and uh, it could be either seasonal—you hunt deer, or it could be year-round. You could also, like Boone did, by the second or third frost, you start trapping beaver, and then as the season rolls around again, you kind of switch off, and uh, by April, May, you're tra- you're killing deer again. But yeah, it, it was a. Uh, they're kind of like the forerunners to the mountain men. But of course the, the mountain men, their number one quarry is what? The Rocky Mountain Trappers wanted what? Beavers. Yeah. yeah. And for the, the long hunter, the number one quarry was the white tailed deer. Yeah, white tailed deer. And uh but and, and in, in both cases, fashion drove it. And uh and it was male fashion and uh the male fashion. Male fashion. I mean women you know, you know, they had some deer skin dresses, I guess, and whatever. And uh, but yeah, you know, it was it was breeches, saddles, shoes, gloves, you know, the fancy yellow pumps you wanted to wear when you went ballroom dancing, and uh, they were taking out deer, literally by the. They hundred. were making shoot. They were making like pump shoes with deer hide. Yeah, yeah. typically dyed yellow. Yeah, it was a huge. Oh, it was a huge industry in London. You know, London was was actually the one of the the global centers of of, uh, whitetail deer processing. And is that uh, right? Really? Yeah. yeah, And and uh, there was a number. It was a cottage industry. There was a number of tanneries, of course, in the American colonies as well. And uh, it it was kind of ad hoc. It wasn't as well a bureau aquatized, is that a word, Uh, as, say, like the Hudson's Bay Company, which begins in 1670. And that really is, uh, well, smoothly oiled. And, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you had a kind of a Heck order of uh, who's going to control it? You had uh, meticulous well, uh, record keeping. Yeah, and I mean they even had like it was unionized, like gilded, and you even had laws as far as like height re- requirements. You had weight requirements, uh religious requirements. You could union. You, 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 it was like in your contract you had to pause every hour and smoke your pipe. It would be fine, and let the voyageurs sing in the Courier des Bois. And uh, you know you had really that, that's like those French Canadian yeah, yeah. beaver trappers. The guys had like had like. It was Union in rules. their contracts, man. Every hour, we can we can stop and, and sing our chanson. And I don't know what they sang. I used to, you know, alouette. Maybe.
0: Oh, yeah. I'll tell you exactly what they used to sing. I grew up in Michigan, man. We studied all this stuff.
4: Yeah, that's alouette, right. jonte Paddle your canoe along. We yeah. started this stuff you know, hardcore for some reason, and uh, yeah, but but you never had anything like that with with the mountain. Uh, excuse me, with the, with the uh, with the long hunters, and um, and there was never any like with the Rocky Mountain trappers. You know, you'd have your Manuel Lises and your John Jacob Astors and people that really hit the jackpot and became, and you never really quite had that with the uh, long hunters. But ultimately, there's... That, that, that's an interesting point you're
0: bringing up. That um. Not only is, like, so decentralized, but, right. like, America's first millionaire was a guy that got involved in the beaver trade. But I never thought about that, that with all this, like, in that Boone era of the whitetail hunters, you did not they weren't, like, producing millionaires. At least not at least not ones we know yeah, today. Yeah, that, that's true. Well, w- was he the first millionaire? I thought it was George Washington, but he did it on land. No, I thought Aster was America's first millionaire. Maybe, Maybe I'm wrong. Crane can find out for us. When you get off at Astor Place— in New York, the subway station, Astor Place subway station, there's beavers in the tile work. Wow! Yeah. Oh yep. yeah. There's beavers in the tile work of the subway station, New York at Astor Place.
2: I spent so much time in that subway station. Well,
0: I mean, that's you were a, looking the wrong way.
2: Yeah. Wow. Okay.
0: You were facing out, lo- watching the rats down in the little <laughs> yeah, track exactly. area. That's what I used to like.
2: To
4: just standing and watch those rats <laughs> running around. Well, that was that was the big Bunny area era. era. Area, You know, you had the, you had the Dutch there and, um, you know, the, the beaver and the Bible just kind of are really critically important to the settlement of America, particularly the beaver uh, in that area. And so, uh, yeah. What was the air,
0: like, what were the years when the long hunters like Boone were most active in their
4: hunting? Yeah, it's really short. Uh, you, you really could kind of sandwich it in between between the like the very end of, of the French and Indian War, 1762, 1763, right in there to about the very beginning, the first salvos of the American Revolution. You know, if you're going to put that in movie terms, think like from the last of the Mohicans to the Patriot. Like right in there, you have the Longhunter period. And the real heyday really is quite brief, and it's fairly well defined from about 1769 to about 1773. Uh, 273. So, I mean, it's a a tiny span. Now, you always had market hunters. Four years. Yeah, well, I mean, that, uh, you know, when you start drawing delineal, delineations like that, you're going to get people that, no, it's not right. You always had market hunters and market hunting. I mean, that, that goes back uh, a long ways. But as far as like the classic period of uh, 1768, 69, that's when you had the the big fur brigades coming in that, that weren't, Boone wasn't necessarily part of that. Boone hunted far more solitary, which is brothers, brother-in-law, you know, kith and kin, that kind of thing, a few neighbors for camp tenders. Uh, but you had guys like James Knox coming up from the New River Valley of uh, Virginia. And uh, Knox comes in with 22, 23 men. And, uh, you know, they sometimes... Engage
0: in deer shooting. Like 23 guys going to hunt whitetails.
4: Yeah. And they're each bringing in, and these are pack horsemen. These aren't guys coming in little backpacks. They're not out there just trekking around. They're coming in uh bringing in each two to three, hunt, two to three uh, pack horses each uh, with all their traps and so forth. And these are hand Forged double long spring traps, and that's the difference too. In the the Indian method, the Indians are hunting uh the fur bearers. You know, they're gigging them, they're shooting them. Well, uh, whites were trapping them, and uh, this is when you really have the development of uh, like the long spring trap, the double long spring trap. Um, but they're hand forging them before you have you know like Oneida and Victor and those yeah. kind of folks. So they you, were equally trappers
1: as much as they were hunters.
4: They could be. You know, I think Boone, and people tend to overlook this, I think Boone was addicted to beaver trapping. I, throughout his uh, life, almost to the very end, he would still go out there and trap beaver. Yeah, he talk, they talk about trap beaver and otter yeah. in wintertime. And, um, you know, beaver, again, it, it was the fashion that drove it, and particularly in Europe, because the European beaver was pretty well trapped out by the 1600s. And so... You know, wanting to wear a um, a beaver fur felt hat, you can even read about them in Chaucer and Shakespeare, and so it was a, a really a cultural thing. So that really drove the beaver industry. And of course, by 1840, that's if you talk about the Rocky Mountain trappers, that's when you have the uh, the fashion switch to silk, and that ends that. But but that's really a a, a thriving dynamo during Boone's period as well. The, the beaver fur. Uh, felt hat and and then the deer skins and so yeah you could be seasonal just uh, go for the deer and typically it would be about from april through about the uh, second or third frost Uh, they wanted the deer skins i'm talking about the actual skin when the skin was thin because of the tanning processes of the day uh you know they weren't using big chemical tanning vats they if you got the skins um tanned, and you could. They had three different levels of skin uh, gradation. You could get them uh, grained. That meant that they were uh, fully processed, tanned, ready to go. And that could be either if you got them through the Indian trade, a brain tan, or through the white trade, typically an oak tan of some type, or they were even using uh, salt alum. Or you could get them half-dressed. That meant that you, and this is what Boone and those guys are doing, the long hunters were half-dressing the skins, meaning that they would go out you know, they shoot the deer, they dehair it like with a courier knife or a, uh, what do they call them? What they, A draw knife? Draw knife. Yeah. And, and, uh, and then they whip it over a, uh, a staking board until, uh, you, you, uh, break down the epidermal layer and then you would get about 50 and you could fold them up and you would, put them in a bear skin, and so they were typically wrapped in bundles of 50. And uh, like when the long hunters would go out, they go out oftentimes in a, in a team. Like Knox, I said he'd go out, you know, 23, 24 guys, that's a lot of guys with horses, and they would have a big base camp where they meet about every two weeks. Sure. And then they would s- establish small, uh, what would refer to as out camps, we would think of them like little sl- satellite camps. Uh, and even boom, when they first go to Kentucky, the first time they had a base camp and then they would have about six or eight, uh, satellite camps and you would team up. It'd be, you know, Steve and Giannis, they go out and, uh, hopefully they don't get mad about something. They, 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 hunt and, uh, do their thing. And then every two weeks they, they bring them back to the uh, camp and they would wrap them up in, um, deer, excuse me, they would wrap them up in bear hides and they would put them up on scaffolds. You know, typically log scaffolds about 8 to 12 feet off off the ground because of what? Just keep stuff out of them. Yeah, like what? Bears. Yeah, bears, wolves. Right. And a lot of times, too, they would put um, dried buffalo hides. They would stretch those over the top like a hairy piece of plywood or something. Uh, because For rain? That would be part of it. You would, you know, tilt it and kind of deflect the, the ray, but it would also keep the buzzards out because the buzzards would land in and they would claw into them as well. Gotcha. So, yeah, it was all kind of, uh, I mean, it, it, was a, it was a hazardous enterprise. enterprise. It, was, it was extremely hard. It was arduous. You know, people tend to look at these folks like, you know, like, like the like the Daniel Day Lewis type or something. Now, you know these are hard-working guys. It, it's, there's a lot of ways to die out there. The business itself is um, very very hard. You can lose your profits either through you know rain, maybe a bear claws into it. Um, things are stolen like by the Indians, and that happened to Boone several times. You know, particularly like in his first big long hunt to Kentucky in 1769 to 1771, Boone's robbed two or three times by Indians. He goes back after being on the trail, literally from May of 1769 to May of 1771. He goes back to the Yadkin Valley to Rebecca and goes, well, Bob, we're broker than when I left. Yeah, he had two small fortunes stolen from him on that trip, right? Yeah, but he had seen Kentucky. And he knew the way in, and he had explored it more than any white man in the settlements. And uh, so that's kind of paves the way, you know, whether providentially or by chance or however people want to interpret that. For Boone, what you know, he becomes the great uh, icon, you know, the first true frontier hero. Can you explain real quick? Just, just to
0: back up a little bit, when you talk about that short period, that short heyday of long hunters, right? So these are like hunters that would do these. Months long, maybe years long trips right. over the Appalachians. Appala- what do you what do you say from your, where
4: you're from? <laughs> do you go Appalachians? I uh, Appalachian. Oh, you do? Okay. Yeah. There's, uh that's like period. New Orleans and New Orleans. I mean it depends on where you're from. But yeah, Got Appalachian's it. fine. Blue Ridge, we probably you know Over the Blue Ridge. Yes, yeah, so that's more old timey very
0: so it's a very fine it's a very short period. What was it about the French and Indian War that allowed it to open up? Was it we that we that the American colonists had uh displaced the French out of those areas and that's what allowed the long hunters to start hunting in
4: there? Well, it it ended. That's what happened. I mean, you know, you have the British So like the bloodbath ended. Yeah, by by 1762, 1763, you um have the end of the French and Indian War, and you have relative peace that's uh, established, and the British established the, uh, the Treaty of 1763, which uh, ostensibly is to keep the colonists out from the West. Nobody paid much attention to that. But you had the Peace of Paris, uh, and done in London and in Paris, that, and that ended the, the Seven Years' War. And so it was wide open. So relative peace was established with the, with the the Indians, particularly the Algonquins that inhabited the land west of the Blue Ridge. But also the French uh, agreed to not, you know, they, they, their land had been usurped. You know, the British gained a huge amount of territory. They gained Louisiana, you know, uh, or at least the Spanish did. And the British were uh, possessors now of the Ohio Valley. The Ohio Valley was was uh, like the, the, the big plum. You know, you had the the French coming in from the West. And then you had the British who had established uh, colonies along the, uh, the tidewater and uh, everybody's kind of fighting for the great lakes. And so once that period is settled then it's open and um, you can get in there without worrying so much about um, an arrow in the back. Yeah.
0: Those wars, like both the both the American revolution and the French Indian war, were like were horribly bloody on right. the frontier. Yeah, and, and I mean just the like the atrocities you read about that aren't widely known.
4: Oh man, just brutally. Well, just take the American Revolution for example. Most people think and you whether you're listening to a television broadcast or you're reading a book they go, "Well, you know Cornwallis surrendered to uh George Washington in October uh 1781. That's the end of the American Revolution." Well, it it was in the East, but it certainly was not out West, you know, and by out West, I mean, Kentucky, Kentucky, that was, uh, you know, the far West. And so that war continued, the American Revolution, uh, for another year and a half. And... um, It's far more catch-as-catch-can. You don't have manual of arms training. Uh, You're treeing, meaning you're getting behind trees. You're fighting Indian-style. There's no rules of war. There's no real rules of engagement. Uh, You have... Indian allies that are, uh, both, uh, coming out of the Great Lakes that are being still supplied by the Brits up there in, uh, Detroit and so forth. And you have now a lot of French partisans that are, that are part of that as well. And you even had, um, some, uh, Ranger units from the British, Butler's Rangers. I mean, these guys were tough. They were kind of like the the British equivalent of, of the American and earlier counterpart, Rogers' Rangers. So yeah, it was bloody. It was brutal. And um and and it but it was just how life was. It it it's inconceivable to most of us today. And that's the thing. If you read the first biography of Boone, um, John Philson's book, uh, President State of Kentucky, um, it's got a biographical account of Boone, and one thing about it is how incredibly dark and brooding it and bloody it really was uh
0: yanni and i were talking about we talked about this a couple of times the you see him when you watch watching old frontiersman movies or watching Boone stuff you know he'll take his rifle out and split a bullet on a hatchet and whatnot, right? Like, what do
4: you call, he called—he called his gun "tick
0: liquor," right? Because he could shoot a yeah. tick I've off. Done, of,
4: I, I've done, I've done that. You can do that. It's not a, it's not an impossible feat. Yeah. I've done it.
0: But how accurate could these guys have really been? Because think about all the inconsistencies. The powders inconsistent. Like these guys are making their own powder or buying it. Yeah, you're not measuring grains because it's different combustibilities. Like, how good could they have been? Uh, Are there any real, like, are there any real assessments of how good they were with these rifles? Like how far could they shoot a
2: deer?
4: Well, probably the most famous uh, long shot, and it wasn't a deer, it was a British officer. It was a sure shot, Timothy Murphy, who shot a British officer at about 225 yards, um, they were just sitting out there on the horses and uh, the American Revolution. And Murphy came out there and kind of like maybe licked the front sight like the old uh, <laughs> Sergeant Alvin York movie. I don't know. And uh, put his gun in a in a crotch of a tree and leveled down. And these British were like, ha, 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 what's he going to do? And he killed him. And then he killed the guy next to him. That's around 220 yards. Uh, typically, most folks aren't shooting at that kind of uh, range, but. These men really knew their guns. I mean they lived with their guns this was a this is a drill bit this was a hammer uh, this was their tool not only of their occupation like in the case of Boone, but it was a survival tool that you had to know your gun to stay alive and there's one account of um a war war officer Daniel Broadhead who encounters a number of Samuel Brady's men Brady was a scout little is really written about him he's a uh, in, in his own way kind of a an unresolved indian hater his family was killed by indians he had these uh, men with him like Lewis Wetzel who were just really dangerous and scary but Broadhead comes across uh, Brady's men and uh, they challenge them to a shooting match, and broadhead men are all using muskets, and and uh, Brady's men are using uh, long rifles. And they put a keg out there about 70 or 80 yards. Can you tell us the difference between a long rifle and a musket? Sure. Uh, a musket is a smoothbore. They're, it's like a shotgun. Okay. Like a tube. And a, a rifle has rifling in the barrel, like there, you know, they're... Grooves yep. and lands, and that was actually done uh, by the Germans and around 1550, 1560, and it was really incidental. That had nothing to do with accuracy in the very beginning. That that had it was it was kind of a, a a a fix on how do we fire these guns and keep the black powder from smudging the barrel afterwards, because black powder once you fire it it's hygroscopic, it absorbs moisture. And so after you shoot it a few times, particularly with a smoothbore, you know, it it can really clunk up a barrel because, you know, there's no place for the fouling to go, the soot. And so the the Germans just cut grooves in the barrel, straight grooves, and to keep the, so the fouling could go into the grooves. And so they did that they were like, wow, these sure shoot a lot better. And then they spiraled a few of them and they're like, wow, they really shoot better. And so accidentally they figured out from rifle. that's where rifling came from. So a rifling—that's one of the things I heard. I don't know if it's true or not—is that the spiraling
0: came from just wanting to increase the the how much groove you could have. Like you could have more surface area of groove by cutting spirals, and and that therefore, be, and therefore and I, house more burnt powder. And then they hit on that idea that the bullet was spinning nice
4: and shooting accurate. I don't I didn't even know where the hell I read that. Yeah, that, that may very well be. I mean, I, I know guys even now that, that really like uh, straight rifled guns. You know, straight, they're called straight rifles. They, they'll have their barrels uh, rifled, but instead of grooving them, they'll have them cut straight. Yeah, like, but it doesn't throw a spin on it. Well, but you have kind of, maybe you could either say the best of both worlds or maybe the worst of both worlds. I mean, it, it still functions very much like a rifle. If you want to use it for turkey hunting or something uh, as a smoothbore, you can do that. Uh, smoothbore... Uh, excuse me, straight rifles, straight rifling typically doesn't get shot out as readily as a, um, a, a spiral groove rifle. If you're shooting it, you can't take a spiral groove rifle and you shot in it. You know, you're not going to put buckshot in it or they had swan shot, they called it, or, uh, you know, number six or something, but a, a straight rifle, you can shoot shot. You can, any, any size shot, number eight buckshot, double Got you. all the way up to, you know, so yeah, that's, so maybe the smoothbore was a little bit more versatile, a musket, at that time, right? Yeah, yeah. That, that's a real astute comment because, yeah, they were, they were much more— if for a survival weapon, that's what you wanted, you know, because you can shoot shot, round ball up to that very size of caliber. And, and by the way, um, a lot of these frontiersmen, they were riflemen, but when it came time for—you know, we talk, you were talking about how bloody the, the Red War was in the West and how bloody— the the F and I War was French and Indian War was a lot of times when you got into woodland fighting like that they left the rifles back home they got the smoothbores uh, at the Battle of Blue Licks um, August 1782. That's where Boone's son was killed, right? At the, his second one of the second son, yeah, the second bo- yeah, the firstborn son James uh, was killed when he was sixteen uh, by uh, I- Indians uh, in the uh, the Powell's Valley area, uh, 1773. That's
0: that's. Man, we should get to that story later on. Oh, it's it's a heartbreaking story, man. Absolutely. Tortured to death, fingernails all pulled out, killed, sure. and then when Boone went back to find his body, oh, yeah, chokes he goes me back,
4: up. yeah, well, chokes me up. Sure, he goes back. To, well, what happens? He goes back and he, he, he they found the body. You know, initially they they did find the body. That there was they knew where it was. There was four or five others killed, and they buried him. But Boone did go back later to rebury him to try to identify his boy. And the wolves had dug the bo- had
0: dug the bodies up, right? And he recognized some wisps of hair, right, that were his son's hair, right. And he had brought a blanket, cradle yeah, cradled the body for a while. And yeah. then he heard some people, he heard Indians, some Indians coming, and slipped off into the night, right.
4: And he said it was the darkest day of his life, the most melancholy day, yeah. And uh, well, I'm getting show bumps talking about that, right. And uh, th- again, that kind of thing just seems unfathomable to us. I mean, and, I might add, not only are you dealing with uh, native intrusion, but you know he's right in the middle of a number of imperial wars and they're being uh, uh, they're allied with these the imperial powers and, and they're being armed. And so yeah, it, it was just a tough time. And Boone goes back and he buries his son and uh, it comes a, a, a thunderstorm. And he's out there, and, and uh, he hears a wolves howling. And it's a thunderstorm, and he just cradled his son's corpse. And, uh, and the Indians are creeping up on him, and he gets in a canoe and kind of paddles with his hands, and kind of quietly gets on down the creek and and uh, manages to escape. You know, another another close call. I don't know any one hunter, any one frontiersman in the history of the American frontier uh, that was captured more times by Daniel Boone by captured by Indians and more uh, times than Daniel Boone yeah i mean he was he was getting routinely captured and i think a lot of Talking times— talk his way out of it yeah you yeah, know yeah he was boone was um he had a really interesting um attitude among native people and it goes back absolutely to his Upbringing and uh, and his relationship with his mother and his relationship with his grandfather. But can you go back to that shootout first? The guys that are going to have the shooting tournament. What hell's his name? Sure, uh, sure shot. Oh, oh sh- no, sure sh- <laughs> no, yeah, shot. Robert. What was his name? <laughs> no, he was uh, the guy that shot
1: the. Yeah, that the, sure the, shot.
4: Timothy Murphy was the guy that shot the uh, the uh, the, uh, the British officer, and you know it, maybe it was just his time to go. I don't know how you look at that. But um, but yeah, the uh, the back... two the two groups that ran into each other. Yeah, that's exactly it was yeah. it was, it was uh, Daniel Broadhead, I believe, who was an American Rev War officer. I, I know I'm going to get all kind of people correcting me later on some of this stuff. <laughs> but uh, but he sees uh, Samuel Brady's uh, contingent of spies. They call them there, scouts. We would call them. Sp- scouts, they were spies. Spies for the British. No, 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 no. These are American guys. I okay. mean, yeah, I mean, these guys are dangerous. I mean, you know, you've heard of Rogers Rangers. Yeah. Yeah. These guys were like Rogers Rangers, but much more freewheeling. And then they had a number of people that really had vendettas against Indians. And so, yeah, they put small rum kegs out there, you know, it's about, you know, about the size of circumference wise of maybe a softball, 60 or 70 yards. And they're, and they're hitting it uh, in some cases, a hundred times out of a hundred. And, and broadhead had his musketeers they had a few riflemen come out there and throw down on it and not a one of them hit it hmm yeah so I mean that you know it's not perfect but I mean that does give you an idea they 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 took a um, a piece of um paper kind of a precious commodity and that they and put that out at about uh, 40 or 50 uh, yards, and the same kind of thing. Every one of Brady's men either hit it square. I think they all hit it square. I think one guy nicked it. I think there were 13 of them. They all hit it square. One guy nicked it, a piece of paper about the size of, we might say, a silver dollar out there about 50 or 60 yards. And again, they brought in broadheads, man, and none of them hit it.
0: So which was the crew of guys that were the spies that were out just like roaming around
4: exacting revenge? Uh, that's uh Samuel Brady's men they call Brady's Rangers yeah okay. and I mean they were and they were rough characters oh Matt my, my goodness yeah and uh like like Lewis Wetzel I mean Wetzel's one of these kind of guys that uh in in some ways it's um like the like the Greek could sort of uh raise to the pantheon of, of heroes in some ways maybe not maybe he's like the anti-hero, anti-hero. Uh, his family was killed by Indians. He was captured himself as a boy and wounded, and I uh, had part of his breastbone shot off. He was about twelve or thirteen years old, and um, Wetzel uh, grew his hair long. It came down about to his calves. Really? Yeah, and uh, he would tie it up in long braids, long queues, and he would sh- shake them at the Indians, like Princess Leia. Yeah, dun, dun. <laughs> they they had that music then, and um, yeah, and unlike Princess Leia, he did have his ears pierced. Maybe she did too, but he had uh, silk red tassels in his ears. And uh, but he would taunt kind the Indians. Kind of striking looking character, huh? Yeah, he would just taunt him. He's like, "Come, come, collect these!" And, and, and there would be four or five Indians, and and uh, Wessel would take them on just him. He would just charge right into them, four or five, and uh, he'd shoot and take out one. I know this is insensitive to a lot of people. I'm not condoning any of this. I'm just, you know, it's a different time for a different era. I don't know, you know, mentality wise, judgment wise, we can't relate to what these people thought, how they dealt with these issues 225 years ago. I mean, whether it's imperial forces in your world, uh, native allied forces, whatever, and so he would take out one. Well, of course, they they run after him, right? And uh, he would spit a ball down the barrel. He really had mastered the art of reloading on the run and uh, probably had an enlarged touch hole. He would pour, a touch hole is the part of the gun in the breech where the, you know, when you have a flint lock and it, the lock clashes and it hits the frizzen, the flint hits the frizzen, and the flame jets through the touch hole. So he probably had an enlarged touch hole. So you would close the pan up until you'd, you'd butt the the gun on the ground, the butt. Well, that once you've got it loaded you just butt the ground it's, it's self primes you spit the ball down pfft, without a oh patch. like the powder that he poured in there would yeah. pour out and get into the and get into the pan yeah and see he's he's loading he's straight from the horn like from the john like in the john wayne movies i mean nobody loaded straight from the horn unless you just had to like a free got, pour bartender
1: oh that's a important uh yeah. i think to, thing to got, mention like because that, everybody thinks that that no. you just free poured from the horn. So how did they measure it?
4: Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But typically, with the the care and tending of an American long rifle, uh, later becomes known as the. What Kentucky did you just say? American the, long. No. The the care. care I said, yeah, and I said tending. The,
1: Care and tending. Okay. Yeah.
4: Yeah. Just basically had to deal with a, a, a long rifle, and and I would encourage uh, listeners to go out and buy a flintlock. I got one. And get a. I tried to shoot some deer
0: with it, but some would always go wrong every time I shot it. <laughs> well, I don't know anything about your
4: flintlock. I didn't say that trying to, but. You Me know, neither. But <laughs> uh, anybody that's ever shot one can say the same thing. But yeah, get a good one. But yeah, learn how to, to operate that gun. You know, because the first thing you do is you'll buy a good flintlock. And then you'll go, like, well, I got to shoot it. And then you go, like, well, how am I going to carry my powder? Well, how do you carry your powder? Listen, man. Uh, we were idiots we went
0: to go to the Pennsylvania's Flintlock season. now my buddies do it a lot I didn't so like I get one
4: how do you carry the powder carrying the powder horn okay so you do you do. did okay okay that, that yeah I mean that's what three people days. yeah people should <laughs> people should do that that will put them in touch with their forebears it'll put them in touch with our subject. Boom.
0: no no that's not I'm lying to you I poured it into a I had a powder horn but I wanted to pouring it into those little like looks like a little old style film canister I poured it in oh. there, pre-measured. Yeah. Some people used to keep seeds in those. Dude, a lot of deer had close calls on that trip, man. They don't even realize.
4: Well, anyway, uh, back to the care and tending <laughs> of an American... You get them on close calls part, two. <laughs> the deer. The American long <laughs> rifle Different care and tending. Yeah. I mean, you, you... Have a powder horn yeah. suspended on whatever side is most comfortable. Uh, if you're left-handed or right-handed, I have it on the right, you know, in the curl of the horn and all that. And, yeah, you have a on your shooting pouch strap, you'll have a little piece of an antler, you know, it's a hollowed-out deer tine that will be of a certain number of grains of powder. That's how they measured it. Yeah, and so you – yeah. Oh, yeah, you, you measured the powder. You, you measure the powder. You pour that down the muzzle. That,
0: you know how they would plug the horn – with a piece of
4: deer antler, or like a wooden plug, yeah, would that be the measure, or the measure hangs on? No 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 no, okay. no, 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 no. You typically, yeah, they, they'd they use a, they'd hand carve something. A, a fiddle peg was real, real popular. A fiddle peg is kind of like ready to go, you just kind of whittle it down. But yeah, you you take the horn and you pour into a measure, and you you already know because these guys live by their guns, okay. And if you, any any of your listeners can do the same thing because they'll figure this out too, you know, you have say like a, a Like I've got a, my rifle is 60 calibers. I I shoot about 65 to 70 grains of powder. Okay, so I have a little deer antler that's hollowed out there, and I I pour to that top, and I'll um, dump that down the barrel. Then you take a, um, whatever size ball you're using, you know, typically you're going to be undersized by 10,000s, 12,000s, thousandths. I mean, people that have shot these guns, you've got that all figured out. And you have a patch of linen, Usually, and uh you have it um oiled with with bear fat you know bear bears like makes it about the best lube or or whale. It's hard to get whale these whale. days, yeah, you just can't run down to like you know fast <laughs> pro shop go I need sperm whale oil You're like where can I get that and so uh and then yeah, then you ram it all down, you got a prime, but it. you
1: still now use bear grease as a lubricant,
4: yeah, always where yeah.
1: And where do you do you get that at Sportsman's or
4: no. Uh, from black bears. <laughs> <laughs> Get that from the elusive. Yeah, I have friends from North Carolina. So you have North some Carolin- friends
1: that hunt black bears, and you ask them to Yeah, if to you know save- any
4: really, like, any hardcore North Carolinians that live, like, in the area that we're talking about, they do about four or five things really well. They hunt bears. They make moonshine. They produce little North Carolinians. And they <laughs> they play music. And They make moonshine. I already know. I know. I already said that. And but that they, sounds like a bear really grease like, podcast But They really like episode. to do it. <laughs> yeah. You should. Yeah. You should go down there. Yeah. And, and they always have that kind of stuff. And uh, so, yeah, it is the best lubricant. So you have a grease uh, patch of linen in your ball. Yeah. Be careful with that one. And uh, yeah. Yeah. It takes lead balls to shoot a flintlock. <laughs>
1: Got it. I got it.
4: <laughs> well, I didn't even get. It. There's a joke in there. Oh, yeah, I get it. Yeah, okay. Tsk, boom. Okay, and uh, yeah. So, yeah, but but you don't pour from the horn. And, you know, if it was a, a clutch situation, yeah. But I mean, you might have a spark down there in the breach, and if you're pouring from the directly from the horn, then you might have a two pound grenade right by your head. Oh, <laughs> oh, yeah, like in the you know, like John Wayne Alamo movies. That look so cool. Like you know, that I, mean, I get it now. So you're saying like. uh.
0: If there's something smoldering in there, yeah, and you like that, and that powder falls down and
4: ignites up the barrel, then ignites that handful yeah. of that, that horn full of, of powder. Yeah, and I and I think that's maybe whatever happened to like the, the guy that invented black powder because we don't know who he was. But I like I was wondering, how do you invent this? You know, the Sung Dynasty of China. You know, you had some guy and he goes like, okay, I'm going to take. uh Seventy-five parts of a potassium nitrate, which they they got that under outhouses, and they rendered the soil, and then and then fifteen uh, percent uh, of um, willow ash, and then ten percent of sulfur, and then you you know you start you get a mortar and pestle. And go, let's see what this does. And oh, bam, sure, man. You know, like he's spread over seventeen provinces or something. So. And I know
0: when uh, Boone was when Boone would make his own powder. Yeah, they would. Uh, there was some part of it like they like to take the willow ash. And they uh, wetted it with their own piss.
4: You ever read that? Yeah. Something well, about the qualities of your yeah. own urine? Yeah. The well, qualities I'm, of urine were good? The way Boone did it, and a lot of folks did it. I mean, you know, we call the substance saltpeter for reasons we won't maybe get into that. But they dug the soil up under what we would refer to today as an outhouse. In bat caves. Yeah, that's right. Yep. What's that called? Guano. Guano. And And, uh, but they, yeah. And, and then you would... Get the the dirt soil whatever, and you would like take um take like a sawhorse and invert it, and the same basic idea, and just fill it with hay, fill it full of hay, and it's just pour the, the mixture of uh, the the earth guano you know whatever they, they you know typically you're digging under the outhouse back in kentucky and um you mix it with water you pour it through there and then you take the liqueur that is distilled from that and you boil that a little bit an hour or so and then let it sit and you'll as it evaporates you'll have these crystals that's Potassium nitrate, saltpeter, and so you would take that, and then you would take typically willow ash. They use other kinds of ash, and um, and then sulfur would sometimes kind of get hard to get. But yeah, you would mix that together. Um, you know, you grind the ingredients separately, but then you would mix it together. And then typically they would use a human urine because it it had a higher oxygen content; it would flash quicker. They determined that. I don't know how they determined that. And so, yeah, that was, um, but it was arduous. It was complicated and very few people knew how to do it. And if you knew how to do it on the frontier, then you were quite a commodity. It's like blacksmithing. Again, that goes over our head. Most of us aren't blacksmiths, but Boone was also a very good blacksmith. So was his brother, uh, Squire and Squire was also a great silversmith. And, um, so yeah, Boone, was not just a hunter and a, a trapper and, and had those talents. He had, uh, other talents as well, like, just geared towards frontier living not the least of which we were kind of getting into earlier his dealing with the American Indians you know how he how he managed to get out of so many scrapes you know how he learned his protocol you know, diplomacy dealing with these folks how did he learn that several ways uh, it goes back to his childhood um, first of all Boone uh, was a Quaker as his family were they his grandfather George came to America from England, made that transatlantic journey like a lot of folks did. And uh, he was a Quaker, you know, friend, as they called him, society of friends, and lived in around present-day Birdsboro, Pennsylvania, donated a couple of acres to the uh, Quakers there and built a little church building. I've been in that same church building a couple times. The original pews are all still there that the Boone family (laughs) sat on. Are you serious? No. No, I sat on every one just to... Catch that vibe, if I could, and uh, and so Boone and his family were Quakers. Of course, they're pacifists. That's a whole different kind of matter. But they had a number of Delaware converts. So you know, Indians were nothing unusual to Boone. He worshipped with them in church. Uh, his grandfather also had a trading post, uh, George Boone, and he was the Delaware hunters would come in, and of course. You know, they're bringing in lush beaver pelts, otter pelts, perfectly processed deer hides, beautifully tanned, you know, brain tanned. And uh, Boone intuitively is picking up on this. And he's, there's the Delaware are closely related culturally and linguistically as Algonquin speakers to the uh, Shawnee. So the Shawnee would be coming in there and, you know, he's learning bits and pieces of the language, you know, the patois. But he's also learning, maybe more importantly, how do you deal with these people? And, uh, and he would carry this information throughout his life. He would, he would tell his sons, you know, when you greet an Indian, be friendly, be frank, and give them gifts. Even if, I mean, literally, if you even if you can't afford it, you give them. If it has to be the shirt off your back, you know, if you have some bohe tea, you know, tea was a big deal, you know, part of the China trade coming all out of other parts uh, as well, like India, Pakistan, and so forth. Uh, give them some tea. Uh, give them some beads. Share something with them. Uh, compliment them. Uh, never let. Don't ever beat them in a shooting contest. You know, give them some sugar. Uh, and this kind of diplomacy uh, always. Served him well, and and it served his sons well, and and Boone understood when he was in Kentucky that first hunt, that first long hunt, and you know he's out there, literally from about May to the twenty second of December, and they lay in hundreds of deer skins and quite a few fur bearers, primarily beaver. The Shawnees swooped down on him, Captain Will Emery, who would later capture Boone five years later, <laughs> the Laurel Blue Licks as the sawboilers. Boilers. And um, they take everything. And Boone understood, you know, we would look upon it as theft. Uh, from the Indian perspective, they're taking what's rightfully theirs. You know, Boone was there breaking all manner of law, you know, and, uh, but this kind of diplomacy would serve him well, it would serve his sons well. Even his grandson, Albert Gallatin Boone, uh, was a mountain man, full-fledged. And uh, he's out there in the, the, the famous rendezvous of 1832. He's out there with Bridger and all these guys. But there were just Indian treaties that some people just couldn't clinch. And so they would bring in Albert Gallatin Boone. And, and just the name Boone, to the Indians out west, like where we are, would resonate with them because they they understood that that, that meant, you know, fair dealings, that uh, you would be treated properly and, um, you know, when we, we were talking earlier about Samuel Brady and those guys. These are men of blood. You know, Ken, he's a scalp taker, a scalp hunter. And, uh, Simon Ken. Simon Ken. Yeah, Boone, that was never Boone. You know, Boone did not revel in war. He didn't glory in war. He was certainly a warrior when he needed to be. But uh, he understood not only some maybe basic Indian language. I think, actually, he spoke Algonquin, uh, uh, Delaware, Shawnee probably pretty well, and he understood pipe ceremonies and so forth, but he understood just the basic diplomacy, gift-giving. You know, you give somebody a gift, we think, okay, anniversary, whatever, give them a gift. Um, for the for, for Native people, giving a gift... Uh, Meant burnishing that friendship. It's like a chain, and if you let the chain get rusty, that's not good. But you give a gift that kind of brings back the glow, solidifies a relationship.
0: Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off, plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code MEATEATER at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Get incredible deals on premium cuts from ButcherBox. Do you like free protein for a whole year? Well, deals this good are hard to come by at the grocery store. You'll get exclusive deals as a member too. Sign up at butcherbox.com/meat eater and get our special deal. Butcherbox is offering our listeners a free for a year offer plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breast or steak tips free and every order for a year. So every box you get has that in it free for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com/meat eater. Make sure you use code meat eater. To choose your free for a year offer plus $20 off your first order. Can you tell the story real quick of when Boone went on his first long hunt to Kentucky? Yeah. He went with a couple guys, but wound up being alone for a year or close to it. And one of those guys, they never knew what happened to him. And he wound up, they found his skeleton like years later yeah.
4: inside a hollow tree. Like, what the hell? How did that work out? Well, it didn't work out for him too well. But, yeah, what happened was uh, Boone uh, begins his first actual Kentucky long hunt in May of 1769. He's led to Kentucky by John Finley, who he had met in 1755 during General Edward Braddock's ill-fated death march. Boone met Braddock. Boone was twenty one years old. Uh Finley was about 12, 13 years older. And Boone witnessed that whole slaughter, huh? From from afar, right? At Braddock? Oh yeah. I mean that yeah. I mean that's that's a whole different kind of episode. I don't know if you want to segue into that much, but yeah, I mean that's uh Braddock, that was at the height of the French and that was before that was that's the first salvo of the French and Indian War. Is Braddock's trying to build a road and and in some ways, it's a miraculous, near miraculous engineering feat. He builds a road from uh, Maryland, getting close to present-day Pittsburgh. You know, at 110 miles. He's blasting roots. I mean, but yeah, they're they're trying to build a a road to uh, Fort Duquesne at the at the headwaters of the Ohio. You know, you have the uh, Allegheny to the north, the Monongahela to the south. You have the Ohio River. There's the French Fort right there, and so yeah. Braddock's men march in, and Boone's part of that expedition. He's a wagoneer. He's part of the North Carolina uh, militia. And uh, he sees the bloodbath that ensues, and, and Boone escapes. He cuts the traces on his horse and takes off, and he learns several things. One, you know, you, manual of arms training does not work in woodland situation. Two, he learns the arrogance of not using native scouts don't, you know, the arrogance of not relying upon native intelligence, like for recon and, and, and military ops. Yeah. So that's where Boone meets Finley. Yeah. And yeah. they decided to go on a big old hunting trip. Yeah. So Finley, Re- Finley comes back, you know, years later. So let's, let's do this. And Boone by this time, he's got seven or eight kids. Uh, he's 34, 35 years old. They've adopted another four from his, uh, one of his brothers who dies. And, um, he needs to hunt Boone's at age 34. He's already been professionally hunting since he's 16. And so he goes and,
1: oh, into... Can I, ask, I have a question about that? Because you're yeah. we talking about so it's such a hard life. It's such a hard way to actually even make any money. Were there, were there no other options? Like, what? had he not gone long hunting, he could have stayed back and... sure just c- continue to be a blacksmith and but a ma- farmer, and, and
4: made a living and a farmer. Yeah. He was a very poor farmer. He didn't, he didn't do well at it. And uh, as far as making a living on a blacksmithing, yeah, maybe he could have done that, but so, so was, why it, do you it, do what you do? It was a
1: reason because there, there was a reason just because like, this is all that I have. It's not because I'm really, uh, my personality di- dictates that I go on these adventures.
4: I think, if you look at his history, his early—that's a great question. If you look at his earliest history, it was just he was drawn to the hunt. It's a different topic from you we know, were trying to talk about the first long hunt. But if you yeah, look at yeah. at his life, even when he goes to Missouri, you know in 1799 he's 65 years old, a time when most people say, "Well, I'm going to kick back and I'll you know, Boone." fells a, a tulip poplar about 60 feet long. They hollow it out into a giant dugout. He puts his wife and some of the children on that, grandkids, and send them down to Ohio. Imagine doing that nowadays. And then he and his, uh, one of his sons, uh, Nathan, and some others, uh, they, they walk to Missouri, and he begin, he starts life all over. And it basically, is wide, you know, Missouri uh, is uh, Kentucky of old. You know, it's got lots of game, lots of land, the Indians are still wild and Boone gets, ca- get, he gets captured now by Osage and <laughs> other groups. But in the, in the first long hunt into Kentucky, yeah, they're at, Boone is there uh, with uh, his brother-in-law, John Stewart. That's who you're talking about, the guy in the log. And uh, Boone's brother, Squire will join him in about five or six months. He comes from North Carolina. He's got to get the corn hung, and he's got to get the hog slaughtered and so forth. But then he joins him. Then they have uh, three neighbors that are helping them. But, yeah, the, the Indians swoop down and capture, older, capture these men and confiscate everything. Um, and then later, is uh, hunting with Stuart, and uh, Stewart doesn't come back. You know, they... Just doesn't just, come back to camp at night. He just doesn't come back to camp. Yeah, they, and uh, and so Boone, th- there had been some flooding, lots of lots of water. They said, well, you know, it's high water, you can't get back to camp. And so um, several days elapse. Boone goes out, looks for him. He finds a a, a tree that's carved with Stewart's name and initials, and he says, oh, well, okay, he's been here, but it's. Kind of cryptic. He can't really figure out what happened, and he never knew what happened. And so, uh, and when this happens, the camp tenders they said, "I've had enough," and they go, and uh, Findlay leaves. They go like you know, between getting you know captured by by Indians and losing everything, and then Stewart disappeared. Um, and so it, it is five years later, like you say, when they're uh, blazing the trail to the uh, wilderness road that someone, one of the axemen, uh, hack into a large hollow sycamore and they find a skeleton. Yeah, out. like what are the odds, man? Yeah. Well, it I again, it, it's it's a yeah, it's an interesting time. It's a dark it, it's incredibly violent. It's incredibly beautiful in its own way. I mean you you know the game is like the Serengeti. Uh it's just it, it it's got that romantic side to it, but it's just incredibly violent. You hack into it tree, and you find a skeleton, and they call Boone because he's the leader of the axe team. Sorry, where without that hole that was just made
1: by this axe, where was the next closest hole in this tree for the body to get there?
0: They feel that he crawled in there wounded. Yeah. Because he had broken bones,
4: yeah, yeah. The, uh, so there was like the a hole guard.
1: at the base of the tree,
4: maybe. Somehow, yeah. I mean, I'd yeah, like to see it, that damn tree. These are immense trees. You can read about the the trees in that day, uh, and this is what was so appealing about Kentucky. Kentucky was like this big parkland. I mean, don't forget the geographic zone of Kentucky today. That wasn't Kentucky. Kentucky then would be like just draw a triangle, like uh Kentucky, uh, Louisville. Eastward over to, like, Lexington, Frankfurt, that area, and then down to about present-day Berea. That's like the bluegrass. That was Kentucky. And you had giant deciduous trees, tulip poplars. I mean, you would have uh, five or six men that would camp in a tree over a season. They would camp in the tree. Some, in some cases, they what could do even— you mean by in camping hollow. in a tree? I mean, in the hollow tree. In some cases, you could even get the horse in there. Yeah. Yeah. A huge, and, and because of the native practices of, of uh, you know, now we're learning how valid this is, but the native practices that, that had gone on for hundreds of years of uh, of burning uh, the, the grasses, you know, seasonally torching them to get rid of what we would say is secondary growth and gets rid of pests. And you can see for a long ways and look out for enemies. I mean, there's a lot of reasons why they would torch um, the, the prairie, the savannah periodically. What it did is it is it cleared out the secondary growth, and then you had these large deciduous trees that would lit, grow and grow and grow. And so, when they would describe Kentucky, you can read John Philson's book on Kentucky that came out in 1784, the, the discovery, settlement, and President state of Kentucky by John Philson, and he describes Kentucky like a vast meadowland. And the word Kentucky, uh, they think there's different interpretations. You know, you have people that think it's Iroquoian, it means dark and bloody ground, but the Algonquin translation is um, the great meadowland. And so you had these immense hollow trees. The soil was loose. Again, it means nothing for us to say, uh, you could get there on the first day and plow. You know, we don't think like that. I think, do I have my cell phone charged up? But yeah, you could get there the first day and you could actually plow because of the, the openness of the land, the soil fertility, the looseness of the soil so they find his body in one of these immense trees. But yeah, the the chances of that. Oh, if I could have that tree with that body in it, I'd put that right in my
0: living room, man. The the tree or the body. I'd want to saw. Both i want to saw
4: that chunk and
0: have it sitting in my living room, right in the center of the living room. Yeah,
4: it, it, it was John Stewart, and, and and Boone was very close to it. His brother, and he all. had broken up bones, right? It, it was one. It was the the upper left arm. It was uh, like between, so like the shoulder, of the deltoid to about the elbow. There was a a broken bone, and it was discolored and from lead. And so it was obviously it was a, a broken. Uh, he got shot. He got shot, and uh, Boone theorized it was probably getting cold or he was being chased or something. And he crawled inside the tree and uh, and died there. Very sad, lonesome, forsaken death. Oh, it's haunting, man. And the fact that they found it. Well,
0: and you can give him a And the arrow. fact that Boone was there when they found
4: it. Yeah, and, and and how did he identify him? How would he how would he know this is John Stewart? Probably his kit, right? I don't know. His gear, yeah. He had his powder horn and had his name carved in it. Oh, really? Uh, Yeah. And Boone said, you know, there he thought that he could kind of look see some look on the skull and maybe put out some uh, resemblances. I don't know how valid that is, but that 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 is one account. But yeah, the powder horn had his name on it, and it was just distinctive. hmm. You said earlier that he had carved um, the guy that was dead that
1: he had carved his name in a a tree. Was that a common practice? Yeah, these guys are just kind of like. I was here, kind of a marking.
4: Yeah, I mean, I think even now, you know, people want to leave their their sure. their John Doe, and uh, it was common with with American Indians as well uh, on trees that were along uh, well established uh, buffalo paths. The buffalo paths were like the great interstate system. You know, we had this idea that they just walked out in the wilderness and go, like, north, and they just, they just somehow knew that. Well, you no, know, they didn't know that. I mean, they you could you know infer it, figure things out. They were very good at what they did. But the, the Buffalo Trails, uh, you know, the Buffalo East of the Mississippi had been there for several hundred years, and so they had their vast avenues. Some were lead traces. Lead meant they went someplace. Some just kind of petered out. Like, you know, you get in the woods today, you walk down a path. Sometimes it goes somewhere. A lot of times it doesn't. But along those trails, uh, there would be trees, and they would oftentimes bark who was there. Indians oftentimes would uh, leave cryptic, uh, animistic markings of of their own devising. Uh, When Boone made camps in Kentucky, his first uh, hunt, Boone would make decoy camps because he knew how the Indians made their camps. And so he would make a camp that looked like an Indian camp, like a Shawnee camp, but he would camp in cane breaks. And they would come by and leave marks, like, come visit us. Man, how's it going? You know, and, uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh,
0: you, you earlier you kind of mentioned this, that you get this idea of some guy going through the woods with a little backpack. But these guys, when they struck out, yeah. they that, had a big footprint.
4: Yeah, pack horsemen. These are pack and, horsemen. And the dogs. Can you talk about the dogs a little bit? <laughs> yeah. I mean, they had real distinctive, uh, dog breeds, some of which are, um, we kind of had their descendants today, like, like what we would call today a plot hound. You know, mm-hmm. they're good cat dogs, you know, cat, I mean, panther, you know, and, uh, like black and tans, probably the, the most commonly seen dog would have been the mountain cur, like a yellow mountain cur or brindle mountain cur, you know, good catch dogs, good hold dogs. And a lot of people had, uh, Bulldogs, like the American Bulldogs. Uh, Dr. Thomas Walker, who came to Kentucky. You know, Boone was not—there's a lot of mythology about him. He wasn't the first guy into Kentucky. You know, long hunters didn't come in to bring civilization. That's the last thing they wanted. You know, they weren't trying to make the land free for God and country, hearth and home. That, again, that would be like the last thing they'd want there, too. They
0: didn't identify as
4: Americans. <laughs> That none of that was, you know, they were. These are just guys that are that are making a living. But you know that the first guy that really comes in and uh, leaves a, a wonderful journal is uh, Doctor Thomas Walker in 1750. And Walker had developed his own kind of a foxhound, beagle-looking hound. We call them today Walker hounds. You know, he, I'm sure you've heard of those. And that's yeah, that's another type that they had. Yeah, and the spaniels. Spaniels were popular. Audubon had a spaniel. He wasn't a long hunter, but you know he that time period close.
1: And how And how did they use them? Like, like they had them around, obviously, but, like, you in the notes it says it wasn't just for hunting. Yeah, well, I mean,
4: think of yourself in kind of an aboriginal fashion. You know, they're going to keep you warm, you know, get them in there. Like, if you're in that hollow log, that hollow tree, you know, they're going to keep you warm. Uh, you know, the term three-dog night, not the band, but, you know, that's the whole idea. That's how cold it was. Yeah, that's how cold it was. And, um, you know, definitely, they can kind of be a, a liability. They bark, you know, and, you know, they give you, give you away, but they're they far more than... Um, for themselves, advantage-wise, because they can warn you, you know, it, it, you know, whenever they work both ways. Whenever the Indians uh, were sneaking up on the white camps, they had to be aware of the white hunter dogs. Whenever the, the white hunters were sneaking up on the Indian camps, they had to be aware of the Indian dogs. So, yeah, I mean, they can they they can keep you company. You know, Boone loved his dogs. There's several accounts of Boone singing to his dogs. Yeah, and one like overheard by somebody. <laughs> There's yeah, yeah, a story that's Yeah, that's a great story. Can I tell that one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah sure. Uh, it, we were talking about these longhunter guys that came out, you know, and, and uh, the, the most famous brigades were led by uh, James Knox, who did real well. Uh, Knox later, not so well longhunting. He did well enough longhunting, but he became a military figure and... and um, you know, Boone was still out there scraping by uh, sometimes. Boone did far better surveying, but that had a kind of a shelf life, too. Uh, Knox Knox did well, and he would bring in his brigades. And one of the guys that came in with Knox was this Germanic guy, Casper Mansker. How's that grab you? Casper Mansker? Casper Mansker. And they would come in. Sometimes they'd go through the Cumberland Gap Osioto is what it was called. It was later, you know, Thomas Walker, we mentioned him. Uh, Walker named it the Cumberland Gap or the, the Duke of Cumberland, you know, the, the slaughterer of the of the Highlanders at the Battle of Culloden. But um sometimes they would go into Cumberland Gap, but sometimes they would come, you know, from uh eastern Tennessee, western North Carolina, just cut straight through to French Lick. French Lick today is known as what? No, no idea. Music City USA. Oh, Nashville? Nashville, yeah. I mean, that was the, man, that, you talk about a teeming area for, you know, that was like an area of massive licks off the Cumberland River. Lots of buffalo, lots of elk. And all of that. And, you know, like right there where the football, you know, where the stadium is for the Titans and everything. I mean, <laughs> that was like major hunting area. But, um, yeah, Masker was with uh, Knox and they they hunt French lick uh, and they go straight up to uh, Kentucky, uh, up towards the Green River. And they're in there. And uh they they hear the sound. It's kind of like part singing, part whistling and laughter, and they go like, What is that? That's not like any species we're familiar with. I'm sure they said that too. Species is a big word in the long hunter vocabulary. And uh and so they put the guns on full cock and they're sneaking through the cane break and the sumac and they go like and they're hearing the sound, it's getting louder and louder, and they peek through the sumac and it's Colonel Daniel Boone, he's laying on a deer skin. Right in the middle of ind- Indian country, just singing to high heaven. He's just <laughs> happy to be there, man. You know, don't you love it? Oh, That's a great story. Yeah, and then there are accounts of him singing to his dogs. You know, and speaking of masker, those guys, by the way, uh, with um, uh, Knox, you yeah, they they killed so many bear. You know, again, we bear. with their hounds. Yeah, well, I mean, they yeah they'd hunt them down, but but you know whether they used dogs or not, yeah, you know, but they had dogs in those parties, but they killed a lot of bear. You know, you. You could process the meat, but mainly they wanted the bear for what? They could render them into yeah. Boone got in that business, selling barrels of bear fat. Yeah, you could get about twenty-five to forty pounds per bear, and, and they got they killed so many bear, and they had so much rendered fat that they just got a small bateau, and they uh, when they. They filled up the bateau with bear fat, and they took it down, uh, down the Mississippi. And uh, they, you know, they get down there past Memphis, and they get on down there past Yazoo and Natchez, and they 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 sold their bateau full of bear fat down there. And uh, Mansker bought a wedding dress for his bride to be <laughs> off bear fat. I remember. I remember reading and his the, father-in-law still didn't like
0: him. So. I remember reading one time that Boone, process, Boone shot uh, thirteen black
4: bears in a day one time. Hunt with his dogs. Wow! I, I wow. No kidding. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I. Your Sandy Creek. You would appreciate this because I know you had a some some a grizzly run in. Uh, he had a grizzly run in uh, in Missouri when he was about seventy two. Um, there was, he, just kind of had that moment that I've never had, but you guys could probably tell us about where you just sense there's something there, and you start hearing the the breath. And uh, he looked, and there was a grizzly right on him. He was checking his bear traps uh, up there on the—excuse uh, uh, me, he was track- checking his beaver traps on the upper Missouri. And he just jumped into a tulip poplar uh, p-row and just shoveled off there into the Missouri. <laughs> and, oh. uh, and he said later he thought he was getting a little too old for this. I, w- I want to
0: get into the two things that Boone people talk about now, the two mysteries. Uh, I think I know what's coming. Okay. I want to end on the unknown. And yeah, I know. You've played in both of these fields. You've written about both these issues. The first one is: Did Daniel Boone make it to the Rocky Mountains?
4: Yeah, that's a. It's kind of like uh, grace that works in the Bible. I can kind of argue it both ways, but um, it, there's two accounts of Boone that have him fairly close to the Yellowstone. Okay, and um, they were written by, both of these, written by uh, children of those two who have claimed to have gone with Boone. And uh, they're written about 70 or 80 years after the account. And in one of the cases, especially the details are really great. I mean, they're really tribal specific, like the like they were, who, was on the, who was on the trip mm-hmm. and uh, that they had uh, Mackinac boats, and they were attacked by snake Indians and kind of how that went down. And, um, yeah, it, it might have happened. Uh, I tend to remain neutral on that because what's happened since those two accounts that were written a long time after the alleged event was that um, you've had other stories that about people that actually did go up, that contemporaneous with Boone, like this hunter... friend of Boone, his name was Michael Stoner. Uh, His son, George Stoner, wrote about that. And George Stoner says in his father's account, he said, Daniel Boone did not go on this expedition. I've got the exact quote. In fact, I published it. But other writers have taken part of Stoner's account and left out that part, that Daniel Boone did not go. (laughs) And they incorporated it with these other accounts that have Boone there and have created, uh, for lack of a better term, hybrid accounts. And then those get republished and republished by uh, consensus historians. And people go like, well, there you go. And so I I remain neutral on that. You know, I I want him, I want that moment. You know, I want that image of Boone's in the Yellowstone. To make it to the second West. Yeah. I mean, you know, don't you? Yeah. Yeah. I mean... I'm uh, rooting for him. Yeah. I mean, it's like, you know, where Boone lived in Missouri... This little tiny Trappers village. Uh, It's kind of, in my opinion, kind of like the missing link of the Western fur trade, La Charette. And it's um, Lewis and Clark go through there on both legs of their journey, you know, 1803, 1805, right at that time period. And uh, Zebulon Pike is there. You know, is Boone there too? Well, see, there's no mention of Boone, but Mm. but that's kind of like my point about this uh, Rocky Mountain thing. You know, you want that. You want that to happen. He would have been rubbing elbows with those guys. Yeah, I mean, you, yeah. you know, like who's the big artist back in that time period? Alfred Jacob Miller. You know, you want that that oiled image of, of Boone and Lewis and Clark, and you know, like like symbolically, you're passing the yeah, passing the torch. You know, and you want that image of I do of, of you know Carl Bodmer, the artist, or somebody painting Boone out there in the the Yellowstone. You know, uh, but but. The dates are inconsistent. Uh, these hybrid accounts have proliferated and have appeared in, uh, you know, books that are out there. And uh, you know, they may have other evidence that I don't have. I'm not going to uh, discount that. But I do look at a lot of footnotes, and I see a lot of the accounts out there about Boone being in the Rockies. And uh, if you'll start examining footnotes, you'll see that a lot of these stories have nothing to do with Boone. It's the yeah. same way with the other mystery that I think that you're going to bring up. Yeah, here's the next mystery. Okay. Legend has is, it. Is this, is, is this it. a paternity issue?
0: Legend has it. No, no, no. No, I don't, no that's a great mystery, but we're going to get a different mystery. Oh,
4: okay. Something new.
0: As, as, not even legend has it. We, the facts are this. Boone dies in Missouri. Oh, that one. Gets buried. Okay. Yeah. Later, even though he swore off Kentucky, said he'd never go back to Kentucky. Later, they come and dig him up and haul them over and rebury them in Kentucky and make like a little mausoleum for them there in Kentucky. Or like a, what do you call it? What's the word I'm looking for? Yeah, uh,
4: yeah, the, the, the little vault.
0: Yeah. yeah. But then later some people come out and say, ah, I tricked you. That wasn't Boone.
4: He's still in Missouri. Yeah, I I just wrote a book that addresses every bit of that. I don't know if I'm allowed to talk about my books. Yeah, Well, that's the last thing you're going
0: to do after you answer this question is you're going to tell people what books you wrote. If you want to go visit Boone's
4: grave, do you head to Missouri or do you head to Kentucky? Uh, I head to Kentucky because what was left of Daniel Boone and what was left of his wife, Rebecca, and people tend to leave her out. And by the way, we really ought to talk about women on the frontier sometime, uh, was exhumed and taken to Kentucky. Daniel Boone died in 1820. Rebecca died seven years before, 1813 just imagine this, you go out on that little knoll out there and you said, I want to be buried right there. I don't want to be back in Kentucky because they treated me really bad on land deals. And, you know, Boone always said given the choice between going back to Kentucky and laying his head on a chopping block, he'd have no hesitation to lay his head on the chopping block. Really? Yeah. He didn't want to go back to Kentucky. You know, you had asked earlier about, you know, why did, Didn't Boone like Kentucky? Yeah, Boone loved Kentucky. He didn't love what had happened to it. He didn't love what had happened to him there. But yeah, his remains were exhumed. And if you read the accounts very carefully, it's very clear that they came and they dug up what they could find. You know, we're not talking about the greatest embalming methods in 1820. Mm -hmm. You know, and, um, you know, they get and they put what's left of the Boones in small pine boxes that are like wide enough for a pelvis and long enough for long bones, femurs and stuff, and kind of high enough for skulls. And they're in small little boxes and they take these back to Kentucky and they uh, inter them in September, 1845. Nobody, when Boone was buried, and for 40 years, maybe 50, between 40 to 45 years after he was buried, nobody ever said anything about he may be in the wrong grave or they might have got the wrong bones or something like that. N- none of that ever happened. It 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 happens, you know, by about 1880, 1890. Missourians, uh, they want the boons back. They realize kind of like what they done. And, and I, I just have to tell you, the Missourians really got— um, Kind of craft on by the Kentuckians, you know they, you know, the Kentuckians wanted to build a really, and they did. They wanted a fancy cemetery for the state capitol. and so they organized a corporation, uh, the Frankfurt Cemetery Co- Company, in 1844, and they they wanted a garden cemetery. Garden cemeteries were really big in Europe. They were big in America, like in Mount Auburn in mm-hmm. Boston, you know. But we got to have famous people. Well, who do we get? You know, you, you had to have a, a famous person to, to make anchor a, the thing. Yeah. Well, people would come in and and they would stroll around, and there was an idea that it was kind of like spiritualism, which I know you've heard of. They think that you're you're not only communing with each other, but you're communing with the mm. dead. And and this is a garden cemetery. Um, had they would actually import in trees and and shrubs and landscaping. It was a whole novel kind of thing, you know. The the cemeteries that they had then, like in Frankfurt, you know, you had a few church church cemeteries with the leaning crosses and some old farm cemeteries where dogs were digging up bones and dragging them around. And so they really wanted a, a, a suitable cemetery for Frankfurt, and so to make this go, you had to have somebody famous, and so who, but you know, the the first family of pioneering in Kentucky, Daniel and Rebecca Boone, and so yeah. The way that the needle is threaded a lot of times these days, people will say, I've had a number of Missourians who, at least up to this time of this recording, has accepted me as a friend and, a, and as a brother. There's still tension between Missouri and Kentucky about this politically. and um, But they'll say, well, yeah, the Kentuckians came and got what bones they could get. Uh, but we have his viscera. We have his heart. Uh, we have his skin. And they start really, like, kind of threading that kind of needle. Like, he's mainly here in the soil, but they have some bones. Mm. So, you know, your original question, where should we go to visit them? Well, by that interpretation, you go both to the little cemetery, the David Bryan Cemetery in present-day Morrisville, uh, Missouri, and then you go to Frankfurt. Um, but I don't think we make those exceptions about other People like, and you know, if you bring back war veterans, like from I don't know where you, you know, Vietnam or Iwo Jima or something, they don't go like, well, you know, we have a little bit of him up in Arlington, but the bulk of him's still over and you know, incorporated into the you know, minerals of the soil. Yeah, I mean that. So, but I understand that, and uh, you know, both places have their validity, and uh, you know, it it really is a shame. But you know, Frankfurt, Kentucky, if were at me, like, where would I go and say, this is what was left of the man. This is where I would go. Is there anything that we left
1: out that you wish we would have talked about today about old DB? Yeah,
4: I, I think, I think Boone fundamentally was a very good man. I think at a time when America could use heroes that, that Boone in his own way kind of helps fill that niche. He certainly had his flaws and we really have trouble relating to this time period. I mean, there's only very few times in Boone's lifetime, very few years, where he's not living in an era of a named war. I mean, he's born in 1734. You know, by 1744, you have King George's War, which is in uh, New York, it's in Arcadia, it's spilling into the Caribbean, But that will help precipitate uh, the French and Indian War, and he lives through that. And then you have this really very brief, bloody epoch, uh, Lord Dunmore's War of just death up and down the frontier. Boone lives through that. You have the American Revolution. Uh, then you have the War of 1812. And and, uh, Boone's 72 years old, and he's still participating locally in Missouri in the War of 1812. He's helping guard forts and and, and man palisades and so forth. It's just this. It's just a different time. It's just a different era. And we can't go back and judge people by those kinds of standards. I mean, they're not hunting um, to uh, some kind of a recreational thing. I mean, it, it was extraordinarily hard. And frankly put, You know, the frontier wasn't tamed literally until the women came out there. You know, it's it's the women that basically civilized the men. I mean, the women did everything that the men did, like Rebecca Boone. I mean, she shoots a flintlock. She skins a deer. She mans the Palisades. She molds bullets. uh, She willingly takes her pewter which was precious items. They didn't have very much, and takes the pewter and molds that down and use that for bullets. Um, the women would go out in teams while the men are gone long hunting, or while the men are off skirmishing. The women go out in teams and, and plow. You know, one group would plow while another group would out, be out there with their guns and their muskets and their sometimes pitchforks and axes, whatever they had, and they would guard the women that were plowing. And after an hour or so, they would switch. And uh, so it, it's when the women get out there, you know, I, I really am a firm believer without being too cliched that behind uh, successful men, there are important, powerful women. And this is certainly the case of Daniel Boone. Um, you know, he was married to Rebecca for 56 years. Uh, she bears 10 children, and one dies soon after birth. They adopt four more from Boone's uh, brother Israel. Then they adopt six more from uh, Rebecca's sister, who dies. You know, th- th- but they're really typical of the American f- pioneer. You know, the American longhunter is the first real American fist in the wilderness. Uh, John Stewart is the first American blood, true American blood, that's slain in the first salvos of the American Revolution before it really happens. Uh, These guys were the driving force that helped found this country. And, you know, Boone was never a warmonger. You know, you had those kind of people, just like you had um, in in the ancient world, whether you're talking about Achilles or Napoleon or Patton or so forth. That's not Boone. Um, You know, he didn't brandish his patriotism, but They founded this country, and um, enough can't be said. They were the first, and my apologies to Tom Brokaw, the first great generation, and they should be be given their due. He's been on the show. Indeed. We were talking earlier about Samuel Brady and Lou Wessel and these guys that turned into rabid Indian haters. Boone had every reason to be that, yet he was not that. He had his firstborn son, James, is killed by Indians. Secondborn son, Israel, killed by Indians. Brother Brother killed by Indians. Brother-in-law, John Stewart, killed by Indians. Brother, Ned, Edward, they call it, killed by Indians. And yet Boone never uh, reverted to that level of savagery. Part of this is his upbringing. He was raised a Quaker. He really saw value in other cultures, and he learned from Indians. His learning from Indians how to hunt not only made him successful as a, as a hunter, but also just, I think, reveals a, a mindset of of his true humanity. And this is a pattern that he'll have throughout his life. And in many ways, you know, we, we're flawed characters. We all have, I do, you know, tremendous feet of clay. Uh, but, but there's a lot about Boone that is very, very admirable. He never resort to like the, the racial the racial hating. You had men in his day that literally would drag Indian corpses up to the fort like Hugh McGarry would do this and, and chop them up and feed them to the dogs just because they were so embittered because of death in their own family and then just the idea that you know, somehow this gives them a, a personal revenge. And Boone saw this. You know, how would I react to seeing that? I don't know. And how do you live in that and not revert to some level of savagery like that yourself. This is what's so interesting about Boone. You know, you had men that, and, and this is one reason why people feared the forest. I mean, the term savage, we would oftentimes just apply this to Indians. And they, they didn't just apply it to Indians. You know, the beasts were savage, the forests were savage. The people within the forest were savage. They feared that because it was seen as like this dark, male- malevolent force that you would revert to. Boone never does. You know, he, he stays this kind of figure of, of great humanity. And um, even today, you know, why are we talking about him 201 years after his death? I think for these kind of reasons, his uh, resonance is still there. And then you have the just the notion of going over to the next hill and seeing what's over there. And that really is, you know, that that heart that was beating under that buckskin coat, that's the heart of every American. That's something deep and precious in our own psyche, I think.
0: Yeah, you got a new book come out recently. We're gonna plug some books before we end here. Okay, yeah. I'll, I'll tell you my favorite book. You tell me your uh, tell
4: me your new book. Okay, my new book is called "Finding Daniel Boone: His Last Days in Missouri and the Strange Fate of His Remains," and it covers every shred of where. Boone is the you know the history of Boone, this entire episode, all the different stories and legend. It has the only forensic evidence that was ever done on the on the Boone skull cast, but it's it also incorporates a lot of information about Boone's last days in Missouri, like the area that he lived in in uh, La Charette, Missouri. It talks a lot about his hunting and, and trapping his his last his last kind of adventures, and um, it's done in a kind of a narrative combination of first person and, and third person, kind of like Tony Horowitz. I don't know if you like Oh, Tony, yeah. Yeah, you know, Ian uh, Frazier, those kind of guys. Yep. Yeah, I love their writing. And um, yeah, that one just came out. It's available from the History Press. And I'm looking at it on Amazon right now.
0: I brought you a copy. Oh, sweet. I need to hit order. <laughs> so I'll tell you how I found you, how I became a fan of your books. Your book, The Long Hunt. Death of the Buffalo East of the Mississippi, which is a good ass book. Then my personal Thank favorite, you. which I read after that, was just the hunters of Kentucky. And it tells the stories, methodologies, everything
4: of the long hunters. Yeah. Yeah. The the Hunters of Kentucky, the A Narrative History of America's First Far West. Great book. Thank you. Yeah, you put it on a like top 10 list in 2016 or something i one of my friends sent me the link really? probably sold the piss out of them too didn't we <laughs> like hotcakes. cakes
2: yeah five cents a stack <laughs>
4: <laughs> i'm looking at it right now 24.95 paperback well i would encourage folks to uh, if they don't mind to support my work i i will say um yeah, my books are available on, on Amazon and Barnes and & Noble from local indies and so forth. I try to support them. The new book out on on Boone, on uh, Finding Daniel Boone, that's the only real glimpse of Boone's um, Missouri years. I, I would like to do a, a much larger work. It actually was a much larger work, but I had to scale it way back. If you want to dig in, though,
0: on uh, some of the subjects we've covered most extensively here— uh, the Hunters of Kentucky: Narrative History of America's First Fires West. Phenomenal book.
4: Thank you. Yeah, i I got an, I got a, a phone call one day. It was March sixth of this year, and uh, it was from West, Western Writers of America. And I didn't. I let it record because I didn't know what it was. But I did a, a three part trilogy on uh, Daniel Boone's this whole Rocky Mountain story. Okay. You know, and uh, for Muzzleloader Magazine, I write for Muzzleloader Magazine, a magazine for black powder aficionados. And um, unknown to me, this three-part article from Muzzleloader had been submitted to Western Writers of America, and it actually won um, Best Short Nonfiction. So I went out to Colorado and- Oh, is that right? Yeah, I got a Spur oh, Congratulations, award. Yeah, man. I mean, I got a, yeah, it's pretty cool. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, so- that's great. Your work was uh, your work was honored. Yeah, I I thought it was a prank phone call at first because I have a lot of friends <laughs> that would do stuff like that. <laughs> <laughs> I had that happen one time when I was in college. Somebody called up and said, "Yeah, Glenn Campbell wants you to play with him," and I said, "Really?" I started like, jumping up and down. I realized it was a, a girl from the, the dorm the next over. I had just played with Glenn Campbell on a golf course, and so I thought he was calling me back. <laughs> <laughs> I never got the call. Crude. That's great to
0: have. Uh,
4: that's great that your work was
0: recognized. I'm a big fan of the books. I love the books. I hope people go out and get some check them out.
3: Yeah, and before we wrap up, as this episode airs, Clay Newcomb is all is in the middle of a multi-part series on Bear Grease about Daniel Boone. Yep. So, if you're uh if you're interested, go read Ted's books and listen to Bear Grease.
4: Thank Fair you enough. for having me. It's been a, a real honor and and I really really do appreciate it.
0: Yeah, and I'll point out to folks real quick that uh Clay, Newcomb, Bear Grease Podcast, is doing right now. He's doing a couple pieces on Boone, focusing on the Cumberland Gap. And what else is he focusing on, Phil?
3: Oh, he's he's diving into everything. I think it's going to be a three-episode series. But he's he's also tackling kind of, um, like Ted brought up, how we needed heroes at that time. He's diving into kind of Boone's effect on Pop culture and how we see ourselves as Americans and kind of the societal impact and stuff like that. Yeah, yep. fascinating
0: character, man. All right, Ted Franklin Blue, check out his books. Thank you,
4: much appreciate it. Sure, enough. appreciate
0: you coming on. Thank you very much. Yeah, sir. I mean,
4: I, <laughs> you know, for a, for a Kentucky boy uh, by way of Florida, it's, it's a big deal, and and I really, <laughs> <laughs> uh, sure enough, I really appreciate it. Thank I wish you. your cornbread up here didn't have sugar right up, but you know, can't have everything. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Telling you what, decked is a game changer. Decked has completely changed how I load, organize my truck. All my stuff that I want is always in there, out of my way, and secure. It's perfect. If you own a pickup truck that you use, you know, like a truck, the decked drawer system gives you weatherproof storage for all your gear. You can lock it up too. You keep your tools and gear organized, job site or out in the field. Go to deck.com slash meat eater to receive free shipping. Go to decked.com slash meat eater and get yourself some free shipping. Hey, if you follow wildlife news at all, you're probably aware that the island of Maui has an incredible abundance of Axis deer, so much so that they're causing ecological damage. Well, Maui Nui venison, is thinning out some of those Axis deer herds and delivering venison sticks and fresh cuts to your door. Visit com. That's M-A-U-I-N-U-I venison.com. Use promo code MEATEATER for 20% off your order.